Do you think people can tell when we're like fishing for teaser quotes? I think they'll be able to tell on this one. <laughs> Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down. Say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Welcome to Season 9, Episode 3 of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories and playbooks behind them. I am Ben Gilbert, and I'm the co-founder and managing director of Seattle-based Pioneer Square Labs and our venture fund, PSL Ventures. And I'm David Rosenthal, and I am an angel investor based in San Francisco. And we are your hosts. Well, listeners, Dave and I are coming at you live well, sort of live, together from Seattle in person. First time since our Ethereum episode, David. That's right, which was not that long ago. Love that we're back in the swing of things. I know. It feels, listeners, you probably don't notice a difference, but it feels uh, totally different to be doing this with you in person, David, in full 3D. <laughs> Energy in the room is electric. <laughs> well, today's episode is on TSMC, or the Taiwan Semiconductor Company. It is your classic, uh, most people have never heard of it, but it's the ninth largest company in the world episode. This is wild. Morris Chang founded TSMC at age 56, retired at 74, then came back at age 78, <laughs> inked the deal to make all of Apple's chips. And yeah, we're going to tell the whole story here. It's wild. It's nuts. They make literally every chip in every iPhone sold today and soon to be in every Mac sold. If you're excited at all about NVIDIA, AMD, Qualcomm, or even any of the chips that Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Apple are making, all of those chips, or nearly all of them, are actually made by TSMC, along with all the chips in your cars and your smart home devices and fighter jets and everything. Unbelievably, this company that the entire world relies on is on an island that some countries feel is a sovereign nation, and the People's Republic of China feels is actually theirs. So today's episode <laughs> has it all, ascending from startup to tech superpower, an underdog founder, and of course, a good dose of geopolitics. Indeed. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, 
Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at StatSig than at Visa? On the customer side, StatSig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. All right. Well, listeners, it finally felt like the right time to do this episode amidst this global chip shortage that we've got going on that, David, I think I've heard even Ford has paused the production of F-150s because of this. So it is like a massive impact on the world. I think we've had TSMC on the agenda to do for like two and a half years yeah. now in our little Google Doc. Totally. Well, I feel like we haven't called it a miniseries, but let's call it a miniseries on semiconductors and like silicon. <laughs> like, arm episode. Yep. Arm episode, the Sequoia part one. That's right. We've done a ton of the PA semi. Yep. Okay, listeners, it is time to jump into the history and facts, and David's going to lead us in that. But as usual, even though we're going to be probably very excited about some companies, less excited about other companies, this show is not investment advice. We may have investments in the companies we discuss. It's for entertainment and informational purposes only, and you should do all of your own research, even if you listen to the show for research purposes. Go do other research, too. <laughs> As well. Yeah. Do you hold TSMC? I don't. I mean, I wish I did. I do not. I really wish I did starting pre-pandemic. We'll have to think about it as we go through this episode. Okay. Speaking of, we start in Ningbo, China in July 1931, just about one year after Warren Edward Buffett was born in Omaha, Nebraska, And there are going to be quite a few uh, parallels here as we go through this episode. But in July 1931 in Ningbo, China, our protagonist, Dr. Morris Chang, Order of the Propitious Clouds with Special Grand Cordon, which is the highest civilian honor that anyone in Taiwan can hold. Sweet. So he's like a knight of Taiwan. It's the Order of Propitious Clouds. And then I think there's like nine ranks of it. And the highest is special grand cordon and he's special grand he's he's special yes he's very special (laughs) so he was born then for those who are unfamiliar with chinese geography ningbo is a small city just a bit south of shanghai you know small like uh it's about eight million people you know (laughs) just casual no big deal china scale is ridiculous but certainly wasn't eight million people when morris was born in 1931 no but i bet it was still probably pretty big Hmm. but yeah today eight million people crazy So Morris's father was a county official and later became a bank manager. So the family moved around a bunch, uh, a good bit within China as his father was transferring for work. This is pre-People's Republic of China. This is pre-World War II. This This is a very different place. Right. The leadership is not communist. No, no, no. So his early childhood years were like middle class, not wealthy, but like pretty well to do relative to your average Chinese citizen. Then when he was six, the Second Sino-Japanese War breaks out, 
and Morris and his mom flee the main part of China to Hong Kong, and they go to live in Hong Kong for a few years to escape the air raids and the fighting. Hmm. And then on December 8th, 1941, three hours after Pearl Harbor, the Japanese attack and invade Hong Kong. Morris talks about this. He's like, yeah, everybody knows, you know, Pearl Harbor, like December 7th, 1941. What people don't often talk about is like the same thing happened in Hong Kong three hours later on the next day. So they're in Hong Kong. So they flee again back to China. They end up in Shanghai this time and they stay there for a few years until 1948 after World War II is over. But that's when the Chinese Civil War breaks out that would lead to the Chinese Communist Revolution. And so they flee again back to Hong Kong. (laughs) So this is crazy. Morris, before he turns 18, he has lived through three major wars. The Second Sino-Japanese War, World War II, and the Chinese Civil War. Crazy. So the next year, in 1949, which is the same year as the establishment of the PRC, the People's Republic of China, Morris turns 18, and with the help of an uncle that he has in Boston, his life completely changes. He gets accepted to Harvard. So he goes to the U.S., he goes to college at Harvard, like... Wow. Talk about a change of fate. Talk about a change of fate, a change of scene, everything. Morris says much later, my reaction entering Harvard was sheer ecstasy, almost disbelief. What a country. The United States was at its peak in its moral leadership and its political leadership in terms of democracy, and it was the richest country in the world. Not to mention stable. I mean, you could say what you want. You could count on the fact that it's likely that 10 years from now, whatever economic structure, political structures exist will continue to exist. (laughs) If what you want to do and what he ended up doing with his whole life is innovate, having that stability around you and all those structures enable you to do that. Yeah, like we just take this for granted, you know, but this is a good reminder, like, At the very least, he's probably not going to have to flee Boston to continue his (laughs) studies. But he does end up fleeing Harvard, as we'll get into. So Morris loved it. So even that, that quote we read, like he was so overjoyed to be there. But he realizes he has kind of a new problem in America and at Harvard. His parents aren't coming over. He's on his own. He's got to support himself and make his own way. And at that time, his race is probably gonna limit his opportunities so as he says quote in the early 50s in the united states there were chinese laundrymen chinese restaurateurs chinese engineers and chinese professors those were the only respectable professions for chinese no lawyers no accountants no politicians and what does harvard turn out lawyers sort of accountants maybe politicians yes yeah not a lot of engineers. certainly finance professionals certainly finance professionals As we will see as we will go along, Morris uh, is much more than a finance professional, but Harvard actually didn't have an undergrad engineering program at the time. Huh. That's crazy to think about. If you're really, really focused, you're probably going to go down the street in Cambridge from Harvard. To MIT. To MIT, which Morris does. So he only spends his freshman year there. And then for his sophomore year, he transfers to MIT so that he can study mechanical engineering we're gonna have to the next episode that matimco sponsors we're gonna have to add tsmc to the alumni companies list it's amazing why it is amazing like the number of 
companies and market cap that have come out of that university is incredible. And Pilot, right? And Pilot. That's <laughs> right. We have so many companies to add to the list. Uh, all three co-founders from Pilot, MIT alums. So Morris, our man, he has learned the ways of the world in the US. He's focused. He finishes his under, he starts mechanical engineering a year behind at MIT. He finishes both undergrad and his master's in the remaining three years. And what year is this? This would have been 1951 when he transferred, fall of 1951. Okay, so like to contextualize what's going on in the tech world right now with quotes around it, because it's not so much a world as a very small continent. I mean, you have all of the post-World War II defense spending that went in, particularly on the West Coast over with the innovations from Stanford. But has Fairchild Semiconductor been started yet? Nope, nope, nope. So maybe Shockley Semiconductor. Shockley Semiconductor was probably just getting going, but we're probably still in vacuum too. Like Bell Labs land. Like the transistor, to give you a sense, silicon is years away. Transistors are probably just getting going. We're not in the integrated circuit yet. And it's all being done in germanium, not silicon. Wow. So it's like, this is OG. Yep. So after he gets his master's in the three years, Morris wants to stay and do a PhD, fully complete his technical training. But he ends up failing his qualifying exams twice. They give you two chances to take and he fails twice. By the way, this is a good time to say, so David and I watched and listened to every footage that Morris has ever spoken that has been released publicly to prepare for this. He is very funny. Oh, he's great. The way he talks about this, he says that unfortunately, the biggest impediment to him going forward was that he failed the qualifying exam. But fortunately for him, they were kind enough to let him take it a second time, which he also failed. And he has this really dry, clever sense of humor. So in one of the interviews, he talks about one of the Stanford ones. He gets a question from the audience about how did he kick his smoking habit oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) that like that the questioner is like i know you used to smoke like how did you finally stop and he's like i never stopped i still smoke yeah (laughs) he's like 94 years old and he's so he goes on to make the case for why he's a pipe smoker yep and actually even though smoking is hurtful to his lungs it's actually beneficial for his mental life so he's pretty sure it's prolonged his life well he says he's he's (laughs) delved into the data and pipe smokers live longer than non-smokers. Which I'm sure you can find data to support that. I'm also sure you can find plenty of data to refute that. But uh, yes, th- this, this gives you a sense of who Morris is. Okay, so he's failed his qualifying exams. He's got to go out and get a job. And you know, not as a PhD, he's got to go get a job as a like super entry level as an engineer. I mean, he has a master's degree, but still. Okay, so legend has it. He has a couple job offers. The one he really wants... Remember, he's a mechanical engineer, and this is like super early days of technology. It's not really a thing. There yet. was electrical engineering at this time. Oh, but- right, right, right. Y- yes, he could, but he, he didn't study electrical engineering. But like in terms of where you would want to work, like it's not really on anybody's radar screen, especially Morris's, that like you're going to go enter the tech industry. Right. So he gets his dream job offer from the Ford Motor Company. Oh, no way. Yes. I didn't yes. hear that. And this is like, I'm sure this is apocryphal. But let's repeat the apocryphal let's story and broadcast it out story. to hundreds of thousands of people here. Uh, totally. <laughs> so the legend has it that Ford offers him a salary of $479 a month to go take an entry level job. And then he has a competing offer from Sylvania's 
new semiconductor division. And Sylvania, I know of this company only because my vacuum growing up was yep. made by Sylvania. Yeah. Oh, well, we're going to talk much more about Sylvania in one second. This is the competing job offer he's considering. They offer him a salary of $480 a month, $1 <laughs> more. And legend has it that Morris asked Ford to beat Sylvania's offer they didn't, and so he took the Sylvania job offer. I'm sure that is a... It was 100% apocryphal. Yeah. But, you know, Morris, he's great. So speaking of Sylvania, do you remember, I'm sure some portion of our audience remembers, but do you, Ben, remember who else started their career in Sylvania's semiconductor division right around this exact Ooh. same time? We have talked a lot about this and this person on the show. No. Donald T. Valentine. No way. Yep. That's right. So he started at Sylvania after Fordham, or maybe it was after the military. He then ended he up at Shockley. To, well, uh, no, then he was at Raytheon, and then he joined Fairchild. Fairchild, okay. Right after the trader he left Shockley and started Fairchild. You're better at remembering these deep details of older episodes than I am. Well, I do a lot of research <laughs> for this show. <laughs> and sometimes research includes past acquired episodes. There you go. Uh, we've truly like become a circular function here. So they didn't overlap, Don Valentine and... They were never in the same place. Uh, they were in different locations and different job functions, very different job functions. But they were both, I believe, both at Sylvania. Amazing. At the same time. Crazy. So Don is out chilling in California, like we were talking about, and falling in love with California. He's playing water polo. He's like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to leave this place. Morris, he's on the grind. He gets posted as a junior engineer at Sylvania's Ipswich, Massachusetts plant. Not quite the same uh, glamour no. as Don out in Southern California. So remember, Morris is a mechanical engineer. He doesn't know anything about electrical engineering, but he's working in this new semiconductor division. So after work, he's living in a hotel, by the way. He doesn't even get an apartment. It's like some company-sponsored hotel. Like, what a sad existence. He goes home, back to the hotel from work. And he studies the best textbook that he can find about electrical engineering, which is entitled Electrons and Holes in Semiconductors with Applications to Transistor Electronics, written just recently, you know, a couple years before in 1950 by William Shockley. Oh, wow. Yeah. Shockley and two other guys basically invented the... I'm not sure it was the first transistor, but the first transistor of the type that everything else would then be sort of built upon when they were at Bell Labs not too long before this. Yeah, not too long at all. I mean, it was, again, it was vacuum, like ENIAC was vacuum tubes. And then Shockley invented the transistor. And then in a sec, we're going to talk about the integrated circuit that Bob Noyce and Jack Kilby, who we're going to talk about, invented, co-invented. But anyway, okay, back to this moment in time. So... Morris is just studying the Shockley textbook in his hotel room. But like he's not a college and he doesn't have any teachers. He just has the book. Wow. <laughs> but he's very resourceful. So he figures out that one of the senior engineers at the plant is kind of an alcoholic and hits up the hotel bar almost every night. <laughs> so what Morris does is he comes home from work in the early evening. He studies in his room for a couple hours. And then later at night when the older colleague shows up at the bar... Morris goes down to the bar not to drink, but he brings the textbook oh, and he amazing. asks the guy questions. He's like, I don't understand this. I don't understand that. Like, grill me. And he's just like buying drinks for his buddy. So great. Incredible. Here's the quote he says later. He, being the older colleague, didn't solve all my problems, but he solved enough so that I could move ahead. He was my main teacher. 
<laughs> about electrical engineering. So great. Wow. So this goes on for three years with Morris is like, he's like rolling hard. Like he's burning the candle at both ends, working and at the bar, but not drinking, <laughs> uh, learning. But as he like is learning the industry, coming up to speed, it becomes pretty clear to him that if he really wants to go places in uh, this new emerging industry, Sylvania, not really the right bus to be on, mm. so to speak. Uh, and obviously... Don Ballantyne figures out the same thing and jumps to Raytheon and then to Fairchild. Morris says that the moment when this crystallized for him was there was a talk that a senior manager at Sylvania gave at the plant. And the quote that the senior manager said that stuck with Morris for the rest of his life was, we at Sylvania cannot make what we can sell and we cannot sell what we can make. <laughs> Real great position to be in. So Morris is like, damn, I got to get yeah, the hell out of here. That's a, that's a signal to move on if yeah. I ever heard one. Uh, totally. So, you know, like Don, Morris leaves Sylvania for greener pastures. However, not to California. Halfway in between. Or to Silicon Valley. Yep. Halfway in between. So we talk a lot about, you know, Fairchild and the Trader Eight, Silicon Valley, blah, 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 you know the place to be like here's the secret silicon valley it's all marketing like the biggest semiconductor company in all types digital analog everything at that time was not in california it was in dallas texas it was texas instruments which of course me you many people in our generation know of as the people that made our graphing calculators in high school and college but of course at this time i don't even think they had a consumer division yet they were no just no, making... no no and that, that's going to come up later uh no ti was the juggernaut like now silicon valley is silicon valley but then it was like yeah okay california i don't know west coast whatever like ti was the big incumbent they were the juggernaut ti actually got its start i had no idea before doing the research here hmm. in the 30s like you're like how did a technology company end up in and a semiconductor company end up in dallas texas they started making instruments texas instruments for measuring seismic activity for oil exploration whoa so all the oh, oil that companies makes sense about texas they were like the TSMC, like the technology provider to oil companies. And that's what led them into computing and into digital to power that oh, business. Wow. And yeah, so they, like, they were huge. Not just huge in terms of like the company, but they were the technology leader. So Bob Noyce, like I was saying a minute ago, is credited you know, when he was at Fairchild, inventing the integrated circuit and all that. Well, he was the co-inventor simultaneously it was co-invented by jack kilby who was at ti and jack was actually the one who got the nobel prize oh. for inventing the integrated circuit gordon moore who was also you know at fairchild and, and then founder of intel along with noise he would coin moore's law but jack has a great quote too about the implications of the integrated circuit and semiconductors he says what we didn't realize then this was a little later when when they were inventing it was that the integrated circuit would reduce the cost of electronic functions by a factor of a million to one. Nothing had ever done that for anything before. Wow. It's such a great way to frame it too. Like this had never happened in human history where like there was this like huh. this thing that used to be X expensive in terms of resources. And then magically one day it's a million times cheaper. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't realize it was on that scale. This is probably a good time to talk about some definitions because there are some things that we've thrown around already that it's worth, I think everyone has a general understanding of what these things are, but it's worth understanding more precisely before we move on. The first of which is a transistor. The best way to think about a transistor is not the 
tiny little transistor that's on a silicon die today, but think about it as a little encased piece of circuitry with three prongs coming out of it. And those three prongs, we'll save the technical names, basically have an input, an output, and something that controls the input and the output. It's a switch. It has two purposes, the first of which is being a switch where you can decide that either lots of stuff is going to go through it, stuff being voltage, current, or none, or it rounds to none. And so that way you can decide, hey, this binary piece of equipment is either off, zero, or on, one. Okay, so that's a transistor. Now, a transistor can be made out of lots of different things. It can take any implementation. Why is everybody talking about silicon? Well, silicon as an (laughs) element is a semiconductor. It is a metalloid. It has some properties that make it like a metal, like a conductor. It has some properties that make it non-conductive. Like imagine trying to move electrical signal through a piece of wood. It's not going to work. But imagine moving it through copper. It's going to work really well and you're never going to be able to interrupt it. Well, geez, wouldn't it be great if we had some material, a semiconductor, where we could modify whether current was flowing through it or not. Make it a switch really easily. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and lots of things are semiconductors. Germanium was the main material for a while, but like germanium is expensive and rare. Silicon silicon, is sand. (laughs) I think it's like the second most plentiful mineable element on earth. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's sand, right? Yeah. Well, so there's other, there's one other major thing though. So we've been talking about transistors. The IC. Yeah. The IC. The integrated circuit. The integrated circuit. A transistor, you know, like it's a switch before the IC People are making switches. Like you make one switch at a time, you wire it to another switch. <laughs> That's like, uh, you know, if you've seen photos of of ENIAC and vacuum tubes, like literally they're plugging one tube into another. You're still doing that with transistors. Yep. When Noyce and Kilby invent the IC, now you can put a lot of switches on one thing. And you know, fast forward today, like you know, the latest processor, you know, the five nanometer processors that TSMC and basically nobody else is churning out. I don't know, billions, trillions of switches are in like a tiny little integrated circuit. Without the integrated circuit, that never would have happened. So this invention, this miraculous invention of the integrated circuit, it happened in 1958. When did Morris Chang join Texas Instruments? 1958. Ooh, fascinating. Coincidence? <laughs> yes, totally a coincidence. Absolutely coincidence. Absolutely a coincidence. And again, to peg us in history here, we're still, I think, 10 years before the founding of Intel. Yes, exactly 10 years. Yeah, Morris obviously <laughs> wasn't uh, working directly with Jack on inventing the IC. But like, this gives you a sense. Like TI, like this is the place. This is like Google plus Facebook. Without the world paying attention to them. Yes, and in Texas. So Morris gets assigned as his first project to a sort of um, problem child within TI. They have entered into a deal with IBM. IBM is working on their first mainframe computer, major project that's going to use transistor logic instead of vacuum tubes, the IBM 7090. And they anticipate so much demand for this product usually ibm manufactures everything for all their products themselves but they're like we need more chips than we're going to be able to make ourselves so we need a second source for our chips they turn to ti and they're like hey we can give you all the designs for you know how to do this this Mm -hmm. chip that we want for our product we want you to additionally manufacture some of these in, in addition to our own line 
you might even say almost like a you know contract manufacturer of chips <laughs> or like like a foundry business almost you know <laughs> hmm interesting but it's not going too well so IBM's own plant is churning out transistors with about a 10% yield which means that of you know every 100 chips that they turn out of the plant 90% of them fail and only 10% of them work yikes that's the first party line the TI line has about a 0% yield. Like they're really? lucky if they're getting any that work. Almost everything coming off the line fails at TI when Morris shows up. So Morris would say about this later, quote, the supervisor was concerned. The operators were concerned. Everybody was concerned. <laughs> uh, so Morris, remember, he's a mechanical engineer by training. Right. So he starts tinkering. He's like, well, I know, you know, this is a mechanical process, you know, chemical and mechanical process creating this stuff. I'm just going to use my training and like optimize it like a good mechanical engineer. So he starts doing some stuff. And after, after about four months, he gets the yields at the TI plant up to 20%. So twice as good as the first party line at IBM. And there's a great profile that was one of the main sources for this episode in IEEE Spectrum. Oh, yeah. Great industry magazine that we'll quote from here. They write, suddenly, even TI president Pat Haggerty knew Morris's name. <laughs> IBM thought Chang had just gotten lucky, but when the company, IBM, sent engineers down to talk to him, Morris described the theories he'd been testing and explained why his experimental process worked. This achievement propelled him into his first managerial job, creating a germanium transistor development department with 20 plus engineers reporting to him. Uh, so this is, this is his first big win here in the foundry business. So on the back of all this, TI is like, all right, we got a rising star here. They offer to sponsor him to go finally get his PhD. They even offer to continue paying his full salary while he's getting his PhD, what? which they're paying for. All right. So they think like very highly of him. Very, very highly of Morris. I mean, this one probably made the millions doing this in 1958. It's funny. I don't know anything about the commercial success of that particular IBM mainframe. But if it's the first one that's transistor based instead of being vacuum tube based, I have to imagine that it was like far more efficient for customers. Customers are probably lining up for it. I bet there's a lot of demand. And meanwhile, you know, what's Morris making a year? Like $20,000? Maybe. Maybe. You know, how much does it cost to go to Stanford then? Not much. So they're like, sure. So Morris goes to Stanford, but like he's now like a pig in mud. He has found his calling. He can't wait to get back to Texas, back to TI. Hmm. So he finishes his PhD in two and a half years. Wow. Uh, wild. Um, one of the Stanford interviews is with uh, John Hennessy, the, the president of Stanford at the time. Mm. And they're joking about like, he's like, John's like, Morris, how did you tell the students? How did you finish your PhD in two and a half years? <laughs> Morris is like, I don't know. I was focused. <laughs> I didn't do much else. So by 1964, he's done. He's back at TI. And this is right as people have discovered the silicon is like way more cost effective and scales up way better than. And if I remember right, the initial attempts at using silicon were that people didn't know how to work with it yet. And so even though it was more abundant and cheaper, there's some particular manufacturing process that you have to do to silicon in order to make it as viable as it became yes that is definitely correct i don't remember exactly what it is it's one of the you know there's so many silicon semiconductor terms like it's not moss uh, metal oxide semiconductor that comes later if we're going to talk about it. but it's some one of those things right. that's like an innovation about how to transform how to dope silicon to make it work as a, a function and produce it at scale as a semiconductor and listeners this is where you should start to get the idea that especially today 
manufacturing these products involves the most advanced process in human history, consisting of layers of innovation in chemistry, physics, mathematics. It's breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough, all building on top of each other, which need to all happen in the manufacturing process. So even here in, what, 1964, we're starting to get into the level of complexity where it's some of the most advanced science ever done being applied in an engineering and manufacturing fashion to get even marginal results, you know, at 20% yields off the manufacturing line. And, you know, a little preview to fast forward to today, TSMC, they're a contract manufacturer for silicon. That is what they are. TSMC has 40% operating margins as a contract manufacturer. It's not like this is just like there's no technology or R&D. Like, they are one of the most advanced technology organizations in the whole world. Like There is so much IP just in the manufacturing. Take out the design. Take out the functions. Just like making this stuff is so hard. I mean, now like it involves like lasers. Like it's, well, we'll, we'll get, get to it later. It's going to blow your mind how this stuff is done. But anyway, so Morris, like he's coming up, he's learning, like literally as this whole industry is getting developed, like he's right there. So a couple of years after he gets back from Stanford, he's still rising through the ranks. In 1967, TI makes him a general manager of one of the divisions within the semiconductor business. And that's where he has his next big breakthrough. And this is on the business side. So Morris notices what they're doing, setting up these new plants for you know all these successive new methodologies and processes of manufacturing, you know, at this point, integrated circuits and silicon, like semiconductors, and pumping out these chips, it's super expensive to do this, like super cost capital intensive. So what TI and everybody else in the industry did when they would start a new product line that would use a new, you know, fab for chips, they charged a lot of money for it because like Man, they put a lot of money into these things. So yeah. like right off the gate, you want the latest, you know, new hotness in the end products that TI is selling. They're going to charge a lot of money for them. Yep. Morris realizes he's like, that's not actually optimal to do that. Because as evidenced by his first big win at TI with the IBM line, there's a learning curve to like getting the yields right and learning how to manufacture a new process. And in the beginning, you're going to have really low yield. And so what you want, ideally from a you know fabrication perspective, is you want to have a ton of volume from the get-go. Like as soon as the plan is online, you want to be running at max capacity so that you can A, learn as fast as possible, get yields up to the profitable levels, and then you want to still be running at max capacity as long as possible because you already spent the fixed cost right. to make the plan. Basically, you always want max capacity. So when you started out, by pricing so high, you kept demand low and you weren't able to get up to capacity fast enough. It's almost like they didn't realize the benefit of the potential operating leverage that they had because they were just passing their exact economics onto their customers and saying, you basically have to pay us for us to do all these fixed costs. And then you'll get all the benefits of the New how hotness. cheap it is to stamp it off the press every time. Whereas what they really should have been doing is saying, we will make an investment, you know, we'll eat the cost of having to spin all this up, but boy, are we going to be super profitable on every chip that comes off the line. Yep, totally. So Morris is thinking about this. He hires BCG and they come up with the idea of actually pricing low to start to drive this volume and speed up the yield curve. And then also the side benefit of that is 
if they're pricing low and everybody else is pricing high, they're going to grab a ton of market share and probably keep that. Paying consultants. I know. Well, so here's Morris's quote about this. He says, this was in the late 60s. And Boston Consulting Group was a very small outfit when we did this. Mm. And we used loads of data, a lot of theory, and a lot of effort. The result was so-called learning curve pricing. We would automatically reduce, so start low, and then continually automatically reduce the price every quarter, even when the market did not demand it. And this was a very successful effort, even though it was somewhat controversial. A lot of people thought we were being foolish. Why would you reduce the price when you didn't have to? But we did it because we believed in it. And indeed, our market share just kept expanding. That, combined with other strategies, made the TI integrated circuits business the biggest IC business in the world and also the most profitable. So this is like right when Intel's getting founded. So like, screw Fairchild, screw National, screw Intel. Like, TI is kicking all of their butts. (laughs) And it's thanks to Morris. Oh, it's wild. Huh. And interestingly enough, the ecosystem around TI, maybe I'm off on this, but the reason I always thought that Fairchild was sort of so, I suppose, successful in those days was out of all the defense spending and research that was being done at Stanford, the government as a customer. But is Texas Instruments playing in that ecosystem at all? Good question. Probably. I mean, I think this is a case of like (laughs) the rising tide is floating all boats. Like, yeah, Fairchild's killing it. Intel's killing it. National's killing it. TI's just killing it bigger than anybody else. I see. So on the back of this, Morris gets promoted to VP at TI, like one level below the CEO, running the entire semiconductor business. That happens in 1972. And he becomes the obvious leading candidate to be the next CEO Mm. of TI, which he's like, yeah, I want to do that. Like, I'm focused. This is like what I love. This This is is why I've been going to the bar for three years reading a textbook. (laughs) Exactly. But might be fair to say history turns on a knife point. (laughs) Things don't entirely go as planned. There's three different viewpoints, as far as I could identify, on what happens next to Morris at TI. He does not become the next CEO, obviously. Viewpoint number one is simply and probably fair that he was just discriminated against because he was ethnically Chinese. Although at this point, I'm pretty sure already he was an American citizen. But Hmm. anyway, and he got passed over for, I have no evidence for it, but not be at all surprised that that was part of what was going on. Yep. So that's one. Two, second point, which Morris totally acknowledges, TI was a really big company the semiconductor division, he had made it (laughs) probably the most successful and the most fastest rising division within the company. But you mentioned calculators. Mm -hmm. They were starting to launch the consumer products Mm. division at this time. And so in 1978, so six years, he's running the semiconductor division as VP. They move him over to VP of consumer products in 1978 because this was a big new strategic initiative and it wasn't going super well. And they're like, oh, Morris is a great manager. He can fix this and turn it around. Different set of competencies, though. I mean, you need like marketing. Yeah. Here's Morris's quote on this. Mark Shepard, then chairman and CEO of TI, agreed with the prevailing wisdom at the time that a good manager could manage anything. In this case, I think he was wrong. I found the consumer business to be very different, like you were saying. The customer set, completely different. The market, completely different. And what you need to get ahead in that business is different too. In the semiconductor business, it's just technology and costs. In consumer, technology helps, but it's also the appeal to consumers, which is a nebulous 
thing <laughs> and huh. not uh, not Morris's strong suit, huh. or at least not anything he's trained in. Yeah, that makes total sense. So in 1983, five years after he gets moved over to take over the consumer business, he hasn't turned it around. It's still struggling. He gets demoted to, quote, head of quality and people effectiveness, which is like pretty much a slap in the face. Like this yeah. dude built your semiconductor business. Is this when he says he was put out to pasture? Exactly. So that's number two. Here's number three. I found some evidence on this. It's unclear to me how much of this is Morris's fault versus his successor. But while Morris was definitely responsible for making TI Semiconductor a powerhouse, at some point towards either at the end of his tenure running it or under his successor, they totally dropped the ball. And this is when Silicon Valley in California takes over. So in the mid-70s, the semiconductor industry transitioned over to the metal oxide process, the MOS. You ever hear about MOS, MOS, yeah, semiconductors? the precursor to CMOS. Exactly. So that happened in the 70s. And TI, again, was well, they had the best engineers. They were well positioned to like lead this transition. They mm-hmm. didn't. And actually, most of the talent within TI that were the ones that led the industry transition to MOS left including probably Hmm. most prominently a guy named LJ7 who left and founded a company called Mostech. And then he later became a semiconductor venture capitalist and founded Seven Rosen Ventures, which was Uh. one of the early VC firms. So he was a TI guy and he left. And, you know, the culture at TI, as shown by Morris's experience, was, you know, this was not like Trader Estate, Silicon Valley, you leave. It was like, you're a company man, you know, stay at the company. Right. So Motorola poached a whole bunch of Moz engineers from um, TI and it all kind of fell apart, culminating in the biggest huge loss. I mean, this is really history turning on a knife point in 1980. So Morris has already transitioned to consumer products. IBM puts out a secret RFP bid proposal for a secret project that they're working on. Hmm. This is 1980 by a new group based out of Boca Raton, Florida. (laughs) <laughs> do you know what i'm talking about ben i have no idea so some listeners might know what i'm talking about this is the secret project this is the rfp to be the microprocessor the cpu for the secret project wait 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 19 what year is this 60 80. 1980 oh, 1980 no i have no idea the IBM PC. Ah, uh, okay. That was out of Boca Raton? Yeah, it was a secret project, like a skunk works division of IBM. Oh, wow. To build the PC, which was a big, you know, IBM was the mainframe company. And they're right. like, we're going to build a personal computer. So skunk works project. And TI, you know, a couple of years earlier under Morris would have been the leading, an obvious candidate. Remember, he had the relationship with IBM going all the way back. TI probably should have been the processor chosen. Right. Instead, of course, it was... Intel, <laughs> I think it was the 8088 that was chosen for that first one. Wow, and boy, did that set things in motion. Well, then the architecture standardizes on x86, and like, boom, there goes the whole next generation of computing right. away from TI over to Intel. The sort of family of IBM with Intel processors and eventually running Microsoft operating systems. Yeah, and then all the IBM clones all running Intel processors. Okay, so this is really where... That is sort a of major loss. In the highway of history, TI accidentally took the off-ramp there. They did. Now, okay, so like, is that Morris's fault? Is that not Morris? I don't know. All three of these things, like certainly some discrimination, 
certainly like the culture at, at TI was we rotate you around. You're going to fix consumer. He didn't fix consumer, but couldn't. And then this, like the semiconductor powerhouse took an off ramp, as you say, all that, like his career at TI is basically over. So he was the rising star. He was, everybody thought he was going to be the next CEO. And at age 52 in 1983, after he stays a couple of years being the like head of whatever. <laughs> yeah, he was something staff. Yeah, employee. yeah. He just resigns. Uh, and he's like, wow, well, I guess this is it. My career at TI, 30 years, done. He's still regarded super highly in the industry, though, in the semiconductor industry. So people start calling him with opportunities. And he wants to be a CEO. I mean, that's yeah, what's he, on yeah, his mind. That's the, he wanted to be CEO of TI. That didn't happen. Like, he wants to be CEO. But he whittles it down to two opportunities he's going to consider. One is to go to a competitor called General Instrument, which people may have heard of, another one of these old chip companies. It was based in New York, in Manhattan, in New York City, actually, hmm. to go be their COO, the number two there, with a like understanding that, like, hey, if things go well in a couple of years, you'll replace the CEO, become the CEO there. Or to become a venture capitalist. Really? <laughs> yeah. So no he was weighing way. the two. I don't know where or how. Uh, I couldn't find that out. But he was weighing these two opportunities. The VC idea is going to come back up in a big way in a second. But obviously, he goes with General Instruments, uh, GI. A, he, his dream is to be CEO. B, he's got this chip on his shoulder from the way TI ended. So yep. great. So he goes off to New York. You know, He leaves Texas. He goes lives in Manhattan. Things are going to work out at GI. The thing, though, is GI had a very different culture than TI. You know, TI was this research, like, build, develop technology, push the ball forward. GI is this, like, New York-based... They were almost, like, at the time, like, a proto-tech private equity firm. Their strategy was they just acquired lots of oh, different yeah. semiconductor businesses, either independent companies or divisions from other companies. And try and integrate them. No, they would acquire them. They would like get these business units into good shape and then they'd sell them again. Oh, really? Yeah, they were like literally, uh, they were like a financial engineering firm, basically. Huh. Definitely not Morris's cup of tea. <laughs> so he only stays there a year. It's clear that like that's not a good fit. So he resigns again. So within, you know, less than 18 months, he's had two major, major setbacks in his career. And like, Basically, you know, his dream is over. Like, here's the quote from him. He says, after these two setbacks at TI and GI, I did not think that my aspiration to be the CEO of a major U.S. company was in the cards. Well, turns out he was right. He was not going to be the CEO of a major U.S. company. <laughs> uh, so how do we go from like this dude in his mid 50s, former rising star, now washed up, from that to like he's in Taiwan, he's CEO of TSMC. I don't think you could ever script this out. I think this is probably the most unique. Every founding story is unique, but I think this might be the most unique founding story we've had on Acquired so far. So back when Morris was at TI, when he was running the, the semiconductor business there, he went over to Taiwan a couple times to talk about building a manufacturing plant there. TI would own and build the manufacturing plant, but like outsource to Taiwan. Not like a TSMC style business, like as a TI plant there. Anyway, he had no connection to Taiwan. Remember, he's Chinese. Like he's not, he's not from Taiwan. Like people are like, always right. like, oh, Morris, but, you went back to Taiwan. He didn't go back to Taiwan. Yeah. He talks about how Taiwan was a strange land to him when he first got there, that it's not going back. 
So it's not the land is a strange place to him, but like if he is going to call some place home and return there, is it the People's Republic of China? Well, I think he would say at this point it's America. Like he's been in America That's for 30 a great years. Point. He's a US citizen. Like, well, I don't know what he would say. It's complicated. So anyway, so he had met a bunch of government officials in Taiwan when he was talking about building this plant over there. And that was back in the 70s. Now we're in the 80s, mid 80s. Taiwan at this point, it's a manufacturing nation. You know, they have no IP, they have no technology. Like It's a great Morris quote. Do you have it? Okay, the quote's great. All right, so this is Morris. We had no strength in research and development, or very little anyway. We had no strength in circuit design. I see product design. We had little strength in sales and marketing. And this is, of course, referring to Taiwan as a nation. And we had almost no strength in intellectual property. The only possible strength in Taiwan that we had, and even that was just a potential one, not an obvious one, was semiconductor manufacturing wafer manufacturing. And so what kind of company would you create to fit that strength and avoid all the other weaknesses? The answer was a pure play foundry. Yeah. I mean, that was Taiwan at the time. So to give you a sense, the typical gross margin, like the average gross margin of a Taiwanese company at this point in time in the mid eighties is four to 5%, <laughs> zero four to zero five percent gross, gross before margin. you even have overhead operating costs. Yeah. I mean, it was like, um, you know, if you were uh, grew up around when Ben and I did, you know, sort of born in the 80s in the U.S., you see made in Taiwan on everything like, you know, right. Barbie dolls, toys, clothes, like everything was made in Taiwan. You know, now it's made in China or made in you know Vietnam or, or elsewhere. But um, made in Taiwan was super low end, like physical manufacturing stuff. Yeah. And to way pull forward the seven powers section, like as Hamilton Helmer would sort of explain, if your margins, particularly your gross margins are only four or five percent you're in a an industry or a business where all the profits are arbitraged away and everyone's just raced to the bottom on prices and no one's able to build any real enterprise value because everyone's just out competing each other for pure commodity. I mean, four to five percent gross margins, like people used to hammer on like Amazon, I guess, for being like a low gross margin business in the like 40 percent. Like, you know, <laughs> um, anyways, I can't even imagine running a company with that level of gross margins. So the Taiwanese government, though, they wanted to come up in the world. <laughs> they were like, this is not where we, this is where we are now. This is not where we want to be. Yep. So they knew that technology was the way. And so they had decided back in the 70s that they would establish an initiative called the Industrial Technology Research Institute, or ITRI. And the goal was it for it to become like the Bell Labs of Taiwan to mm. like do some tech transfers from the US and elsewhere and like home grow some real technology businesses in Taiwan so that, you know, maybe they can lift uh, businesses out of poverty there at least. And so Morris wasn't like going to Taiwan to start TSMC. No. He was being recruited to ITRI. So one of the ministers he had met, a guy named KT Lee, who because of this, he would also become like venerated in Taiwanese history. He's known as the father of Taiwan's economic miracle, literally because of this. Wow. He recruits Morris to come over and run Itri, <laughs> like be like the head of Bell Labs Taiwan, ah. essentially. <laughs> and this is like a ridiculous thing for Morris to do. Like he had been, you know, captain of American semiconductor industry at the forefront. Like this is like, he was put out to pasture at TI, but at least he was still a TI. And then he was like COO at General Instrument. He's going to go over to Taiwan <laughs> and take <laughs> and this, run like, like a research park there. Like what? And like every time someone starts something like this, it doesn't go well. A government top down innovation mandate from a country that's not a world power 
tends not to turn into a gigantic economic success. This is like all the, you know, countries and cities and the like that are like, oh, we're going to build the next Silicon Valley in totally X, Y, Z. And we're going to recruit some former Silicon Valley person to come do that. And it's going to work. Probably not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody tells him not to do this. All his former colleagues, his you know, wife at the time, tell him not to do this. His marriage was actually falling apart, maybe in part because of this. And, uh, you know, he's had all these experiences. He's like, you know what? I just, I need to change the scene. <laughs> I got to get out of here. So he takes the job and he figures, you know, it's going to be cushy. This is right. like he a He thinks soft about landing. this as like the pseudo retirement totally. he's going into. So here's his quote. By then, I was financially pretty secure. I was not rich, but you also have to realize that the standards of wealth were much lower back in 1985. And he's going to live in Taiwan where, you know, corporate magnets have 5% gross margins. But so he says, but still in absolute standards, I was financially secure, which meant that I could live according to the way I desire, which was actually pretty modest for the rest of my life without having to earn a living or a salary. This is retirement. He also makes a joke, I remember, after that about how, by the way, interest rates were higher back then. Yeah. So that was much more achievable on yeah, less principle. Totally, totally. <laughs> so 1985, he goes over, he takes over as president of Etri. It's kind of a culture clash. <laughs> <laughs> so this is retirement for Morris, but he's still coming from this hard charging industry. All of the employees of Etri are people in government jobs in Taiwan. And government jobs, not even, you know, in like a democracy, because Taiwan is like not really like it's under martial law. Or I think that it just ended. You know, this is not uh, the same. You know, these are like jobs for life. You're a government official in a non-democracy uh, type organization. Right. Morris says, back then, they considered me a foreigner who suddenly became their boss. They were scared of me and they were right to be scared of him. So there was one thing, though, that the government had done right before Morris showed up, which was they had successfully negotiated one technology transfer license in the semiconductor industry from, did you, did you find out what company this was? This is probably what they were trying to negotiate with TI for, but I do. It's a three letter acronym. Oh yeah. Yep. 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 We haven't talked much about it on this show, but this is another yeah, Talk about captains it? of American industry. RCA. RCA, that's right. Yeah. So RCA had a semiconductor line and the government in the 70s, the Taiwanese government, had negotiated a tech transfer. But this RCA. is like 10-year-old yeah. semiconductor technology, right? Yeah. This is not like the latest generation. No. TI and Intel and everybody like, you know, at Fairchild, they're you know, national. They're leading the way. Like they're at the bleeding edge of semiconductor, you know, manufacturing process. RCA was already at least a generation behind. By the time it actually gets onto the ground in Taiwan, they're two and a half generations behind wow. the leading producers. So it's like the only thing that you could do with that is... Super low-end stuff. Right. There are some category of goods that don't need a fast or the latest processor. And Totally. Yeah. Even today, when TSMC or Intel or Samsung or whoever builds a fab... The leading edge fabs, they produce the leading edge stuff for a while, and then the new generations come on. They don't shut down the old ones. Right. It's just chips that don't need the same bleeding edge performance. Yep. They keep getting made on the on the old ones. And often that's automotive or now what we think of as IoT, but like yep. the stuff in your smartphone obviously is the the leading edge. Yeah. So the government eatery does actually spin out a company uh using this old RCA technology that would be called UMC, United Microelectronics Corporation. 
not a technology leader. It actually does okay in the long run. They would later spin out their own chip design business. So UMC was doing both fabrication for third-party clients and designing some of their own chips with the fab that they created. They spin out their chip design business later. That becomes MediaTek. Oh, no way. Yeah, which is a $50 billion company today. So like, you know, the government did pretty good. Like, this is pretty good. Totally. They were doing. And, you know, when Morris arrives because of this, he's not starting from a standing start. Right. Like, it's not good, but there's some They've acquired IP. They've created a company. There's a paved path. So he gets to work at E-Tree. He's working on all this. He's transforming the organization into a high-performing organization. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, KT Lee comes back to him and is like, hey, great. You're running, you know, our Bell Labs. You're running E-Tree. Now I want you to start a company. (laughs) Mm. Uh, And Morris is like, uh, he's like, KT's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, not I don't want I don't want you to have somebody else in need you do it. I want you, Morris Chang, to start a new semiconductor company here in Taiwan and I want you to make it into a global leader. <laughs> Morris is like, um okay. <laughs> uh and you know, I, I think he doesn't say this directly, but um well he's got a great quote I'm gonna say in a minute. But like again, remember this is not a democracy in Taiwan at this right. time. Morris is also on his third job in three years. And like, yeah, he doesn't need a salary to survive, but like, this is kind of the end of the rope for him. Like, if he gets fired here at E-Tree, like, he's legit, like, done. Yeah. Done, done, done. <laughs> so he kind of doesn't have a choice here. The quote, this is so Morris, so great. He says, um, it was like in the movie The Godfather. It was an offer I couldn't refuse. <laughs> <laughs> and I do think the implication was go start an Intel or go start an IBM. It wasn't go start the very first pure play foundry yeah lee had no I mean, he, was just, he was a government he's a minister right he was like go start a semiconductor company make it a world leader right those semiconductor companies they do really well you know, so go do that D- do that here and that's of course when morris says okay i'm being told i should do this i have some latitude i can take and some liberties i can take on how i do it and the quote that i read earlier about evaluating yep, yep, yep. exactly what type of semiconductor company should i start that's how he sort of informs the business plan so Lee is like, all right, good. We're capiche. We're clear. Like, uh, <laughs> come back to me in a week with a business plan. Tell me what you need. And we're going to make this happen, right? So Morris is like, okay, a week. All right. And then like a day later, <laughs> Lee supposedly is like, actually, I need you. I'm going to need you to come in on Friday. So like, you got <laughs> like three days. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. And yet these three days are like what creates the you know now ninth most valuable company in the world morris comes up with this brilliant idea to create a pure play foundry company to be a contract manufacturer sounds genius today in hindsight as steve jobs would say you know it's easy to connect the dots looking backwards but at that time was this a good idea david well no (laughs) (laughs) the answer is no you know, like we've sort of said all, all along, all the chip companies, all the, you know, American and European and, you know, Japanese, all the all the leading semiconductor companies, they made their own stuff, you know, and there was some sharing of production and some, you know, companies were emerging that were borrowing production from, you know, the big guys. There's a great quote right around this time from Jerry Sanders, who is the co-founder and CEO of AMD. 
And he famously said in the mid 1980s that, quote, real men have fabs. That's right. (laughs) Oh, what a quote. Uh, So ironic because in the 2000s, AMD would spin out its fabs uh, and go fabulous. Global foundries. Yeah, into global foundries. But yeah, like this was not an obvious idea. Like if you wanted to be a real semiconductor company, you you made your own chips. And the idea was like, yeah, I mean, this was so, this isn't like manufacturing Barbie dolls here. Like this right. is real technology. Like you need to control it soup and, to nuts. And already at this point in history, I mean, this is an important point to make because I, I didn't realize this coming in where I thought, wow, Apple really outsources their manufacturing. They outsource some of it to TSMC and some of it to Foxconn and like maybe some of those people will start to do each other's work. No, this is a completely different thing. Assembling an iPhone is completely, completely different than taking a brand new design for a next generation chip and manufacturing that chip. One is manufacturing and one is alchemy. The alchemy can only be done by alchemists. I think even here in the late 80s, we're already at the point where like, it's manufacturing oh, you need to be a magician broadly, to do this. but yeah. yeah, it's not like, well, I got a factory. <laughs> no, 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 no. Far the opposite of that. We said a minute ago, this is a bad idea. So Morris says, now, however, there was one problem with the pure play foundry model, and it was a fatal problem. <laughs> <laughs> it could be a fatal problem, which was, where's the market? He sounds like Don Valentine here. Where's the market? Show me the market. This whole idea, it was really a solution looking for a problem. And of course, the solution being that like, all we have is manufacturing capability here. So let's start a company that just manufactures. And it's like, you're looking around like, okay, who's yeah, Jerry stuff over at AMD is like, real men have fabs, you know? And like, yeah, you know, there are no real startup. I mean, there are startups, but all these startups are building their own fabs. Like nobody wants to do this. So nonetheless, you know, he has to start a company. Uh, he's literally got a gun to his head. But he does have the core insight here. It's interesting. These companies don't exist yet. But Morris has reason to believe that people will want to start fabless chip companies and that they will need a foundry to fab those chips. And so he says, when I was at TI and General Instrument, I saw a lot of integrated circuit designers wanting to leave and set up their own business. But the one thing or the biggest thing that stopped them from leaving those companies was they couldn't raise enough money to form their own company. Because at the time, as we were just saying, real men, it was thought that every company needed manufacturing, needed their wafer manufacturing. And the most capital intensive part of a semiconductor company of an IC company does the manufacturing. And so I saw those people wanting to leave, but being stopped by the lack of ability to raise a lot of money and build a wafer fab. Totally, right? But those companies, this like, if you build it, they will come. (laughs) They haven't started yet. (laughs) They haven't come yet. They haven't come yet. So Morris is kind of got like, he knows what the long-term market is going to be, but he's got to find the short-term market. He needs some like real politic here. Like, so what's that going to be? So he says, well, maybe I can go around to the big guys. They've been doing, you know, just like my first thing back at TI, they've been doing some line sharing, you know, for either new products that they need excess capacity for or for older products that they need to transition some fabs, but they still need to make components. Maybe I can take some of that off their hands. And uh, so he goes around and he goes, he talks to Intel, he talks to TI, he talks to everybody in the industry. And they're like, yeah, he talks to Motorola, like... Sure, fine. And the government had told him, okay, you know, figure out it's going to take, we know it's going to take a lot of money to set up a fab. We're good for (laughs) half of it. 
but you got to go raise the other half of it. <laughs> and we want you to raise it from like an Intel or a TI, you know, somebody who's going to be your first customer and yep. that they're going to be bought in. So he's like, okay, so he does the rounds. He goes and talks to everybody. He gets meetings with Intel. He gets meetings with the TI. They're both like, you know, Morris, we like you. But no. <laughs> so he's at the last ditch effort. And he has a meeting with Philips, the Dutch company. They have a semiconductor business. <laughs> so Morris, he has a great quote about this. He says he would describe Philips as um, the first rung of the second Raiders <laughs> in, in <laughs> semiconductors. But they were the only interested option. So they put up 28% of the capital. The government puts up 50%. It ends up being $220 million in total. 110 is probably a lot more than what the Taiwanese government yeah. thought they <laughs> yeah, were going to be buying were. here. And then literally the premier of Taiwan, like the head of the government, has to then go around to all the other business leaders in Taiwan and like strong arm them into <laughs> investing the rest of it. The other, what is that, 22%, I guess? Yeah. We also should quick here say, remember that Philips was a Dutch company because that's going to come into play later. Ooh. I don't know how that's going to come into play. Yeah, putting a pin in Dutch. Oh, okay. Okay. We got a surprise coming. I'm, I'm going to be surprised here. We're doing it real. Do, doing it real time. Doing it live. This may be the craziest part about the whole TSMC founding story. I'm 99.9% sure, Ben, you do not know this. Ooh. Do you know what the pre-money valuation was on TSMC? No, I couldn't find that anywhere. It was $0. Morris Chang got no equity no. in the company. Zero. So 100% of the company was owned by... The investors. 50% by the government and the other 50% were owned by the investors. Morris got nothing. And just got to keep his salary. He was a government employee. Wow. There by the grace of the government. Oh my God. Isn't that unbelievable? Like this is so the opposite of Silicon Valley. How in every is he way worth $3 billion today? Well, what he did as like TSMC started to work, he basically put all of his money into buying. He bought his own shares what? in the company. I don't know if it was on the private, maybe privately before they went public in on the Taiwan Stock Exchange in 1994 and then the New York Stock Exchange in 1997. But yeah, he put basically all of his like excess cash flow into, into buying <laughs> TSMC shares. Oh my God. Isn't that wild? So the government owned 50% of the whole business. And you can see their perspective too. They're like, hey, we hired you to do this. Right. And then we told you to do this. You are our foot soldier. Right. <laughs> like, you know, we are the mafia. <laughs> wow. Yeah, things had really not gone well in his career that he was willing to take that deal. Yeah, <laughs> crazy, right? And, okay, before we go on in the TSMC story, we need to have two real quick sidebars. Yeah. We're talking about, this was 1987. Yep. When TSMC gets officially stood up, they raise the money <laughs> at a $0 pre-money valuation. Do you know what other two, com well, other, other company, other big thing happened in 1987? We have covered it on this show in the chip world. Is this the founding of ARM? Yes, it is. Yes. Yes. ARM, JV between Apple, Acorn, and VLSI Logic, which was the sort of manufacturing partner. They were an ASICS company. That's a whole nother sidebar we're not going to get into. But yeah, 1987, what a year. Brand new, unconventional instruction set architecture. It's totally different than the x86 stuff that the whole industry and world seems to have standardized on at this point. The Annus Mirabellis for the semiconductor industry. And useless, right? It's in 1987. It's hamstrung. <laughs> it's very few instructions. 
PCs are always plugged in. So what do we need a low power chip for? This thing's oh, pathetic. Real men have fabs and real <laughs> men use power. Okay. So that's sidebar number one. Harm gets started. Okay. I was wondering, I don't actually know the relationship because obviously today a huge amount of volume of TSMC's manufacturing is making chips for iPhones, which since the outset has used ARM. Chips that are using all mobile devices, iPhones and Android, all of which are ARM, and lots of servers so that presumably are ARM. there's some relationship coming between TSMC and ARM. Um, well, they're they're really close partners. I mean, the way now, like this stuff is so integrated. Yeah. Like the architecture companies like ARM, the design, the EDA companies like Synopsys, these guys are all deeply like the engineering is all deeply in bed with one another okay so you mentioned eda this is i'm gonna take your sidebar and i'm gonna you're gonna this, this you're is gonna a, raise me i'm gonna raise you one more sidebar so listeners we're two clicks out here so this is a pretty good point to talk about uh how the value chain went from one company that created transistors and then they designed the chip, they manufactured the chip, they marketed the chip. Here's how the value chain looks today. And I think you've already alluded to like, I think in the 80s, it already started to look like this. First, there's EDA, there's electronic design automation. This is the software that chip designers, like professional chip designers, use to do their work. So Synopsys, I think Cadence, yeah, Cadence. They're is the another two big leaders. one. Yeah. They're the two leaders. So that that's like you know, I don't know, Excel or like Figma for like chip designers. Like yeah. that's what they use. Productivity every day. tools. Yeah. So that's category one of four. And of course, as you can imagine, the software to design the chips probably has to be very aware of the manufacturing capability of who's going to be manufacturing the chips. But let's put a pause in that for a second. So then of course there's the fabulous chip design companies. So today think Apple, NVIDIA, Qualcomm, Broadcom. Eventually AMD after they stopped being real men, apparently. Tons of innovative new startups now, like uh, Cerberus. PA Semi, Tesla, before Apple like, acquired it. Yeah, oh, 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 PA Semi is coming in a sec. Okay, okay. So you've got the EDA companies that are making the software, the fabulous companies that are designing the chips using the software. Then third, there's one company that we have not talked about yet, one component of the value chain. And these are the people that manufacture the machines oh, yeah. that go into the factories that the foundries operate. There's actually one between... Well, no, actually, I think above EDA. There, there is one more part of the value chain. There's a fifth, uh, which is IP. Um, so that's all like ARM. Oh, right. Yeah, like architecture, IP. There's actually a ton of companies now that do just straight up IP. And I thought before this episode, these were like, oh, just shell companies that sue one another about IP. It's not that. <laughs> Systems are on a chip now. So like everything is on like one chip, basically. You need a USB functionality in your chip. You don't need to design that. You just buy some IP off the shelf. That's like, so, so there are companies that do that. Yep. Okay. So that's a good point. So that's our fifth sort of like IP. They own the instruction set architecture. They kind of create the general rules that you're playing by when you're designing a chip such that whoever's writing the compilers knows what assembly language they're targeting that can then operate on the chip that's going to be designed. So we covered the EDA, we covered the IP, we covered the fabulous companies. There's somebody before we get to the foundries, which is the equipment manufacturers that sell to TSMC. So more historically, you've got LAM Research, you've got Applied Materials in the US, you've got Tokyo Electron in Japan. But today, I just want to give everyone a taste of this and then we'll get more to it later. There's a company that is also Dutch-based ah, called... there it is. There it is. ASML, which was originally ASM Lithography. And 
lithography is marginally in scope for this episode. There's a whole thing we could do on the magical process that is lithography. Taking me back to my high school photo lab. Right? <laughs> yeah. And the L, you know, is lithography. So the company was originally called ASM Lithography. They make the most advanced chip manufacturing machines in the world. They're the only company that makes them. They're located still in the Netherlands. Their biggest customer is TSMC. They, and this is where I want to bring it all the way back around, and we, of course, will talk about the magic that is these machines later. It was founded in 1984 as a joint venture between Advanced Semiconductor Materials International, ASM Lithography, and Philips. Oh, wow. I did not know that. So that- That's crazy. Is the beginning of the relationship between- uh, TSMC and their oh, wow. equipment provider. And what a strategic point. I mean, because like, you know, well, it's it's TSMC's insane capital operating cash flow production that enables them to spend CapEx above anybody else that allows them to buy more ASML equipment than anyone else. But that relationship, wow. I mean, these machines, like, we'll get into it later. Well, yeah. It's going to blow your mind what this stuff does. Okay, back to my second sidebar. Also going to be worth it. PA Semi, right? Yeah. We, did, we did an episode way this like episode 20 this something. Is, this is like when Acquired was a very different show when it was like actually about small acquisitions. That, totally. Yeah. So I don't know that we actually covered this, but I uncovered in the research for this episode. Do you know the origins of PA Semi? No, I don't. Okay. So ARM, my sidebar number one, yep. you know, 1987 also created, right? They're just an IP design company, like I was saying in your sidebar. Um, <laughs> it's like inception over here. Uh, so they just license out the arm architecture to other companies that then design using the arm architecture. One of their original licensees was deck digital equipment corporation, uh-huh. like, OG, you know, way back in the day. Yep. So they took the arm architecture and they tuned it for performance and they called what they did at deck, their version of arm that they created strong arm. And that product line within DEC would later be acquired by Intel, of all places. Okay. Crazy. Why Intel acquired an ARM architecture? Right. Anyway. They're the x86. Yeah, they remarketed it as X-Scale. You know, I I think they ended up shutting it down. Huh. So a bunch of the core engineers on the team, like the DEC team that had been working with ARM from back in the day, and they're like... We just got acquired by Intel. What the hell? Like, you know, screw this. We don't want to go work for Intel. There's no interesting, flourishing, alternative architectures at Intel. Yeah, we're ARM engineers. We're going to go start our own company. That's PSMI? That's PSMI. Ah. And of course, the underpinnings of all of Apple's chips today. Totally. So the lineage of all of Apple Silicon, probably the most valuable, defensible part of Apple today in terms of like technology was DEC, you know, Arm and DEC <laughs> to Intel, <laughs> to PA Semi, to Apple. Whoa. That's wild. So <laughs> I don't think I ever knew that. So you can trace Apple Silicon all the way back to Apple. Yeah, because Arm was a JV right. with, uh, with Apple. Yeah. Crazy. With Intel and DEC in the middle. <laughs> wow. Okay, so back to back to TSMC. So, like, the short-term market is, like, Morris basically begs all of his old colleagues in the U.S. and European, you know, and and Japanese semiconductor industries to just give 
the dregs to <laughs> to TSMC, and it really was the dregs. So here's Morris on on what this was. The IDMs would let us manufacture their wafers only when they didn't have capacity or when they didn't want to manufacture the stuff themselves anymore. Now, when they didn't have the capacity and asked us to do the manufacturing, then as soon as they got the capacity, they would stop giving us orders. <laughs> so it wasn't a stable market. When they so it wasn't actually a thing they wanted to outsource. They were just no. It's just like they didn't have the capacity, available. so they needed some extra excess, hmm. you know, space. But then when they got the capacity online, they took it away. <laughs> right. And then when they the chips that they gave us that they didn't want to make anymore. Well, the reason they didn't want to make it was it was losing money. So like they basically were just transferring their losses on producing these chips Ugh. to TSMC. So how do they get out of this? So Mars continues, the conventional conclusion at the time was that there was no market. That's why the Pure Play Foundry idea was so poorly thought of. What very few people saw, and I can't tell you that I saw, was the rise of the fabulous industry. I only hoped for it. And then, as you said, but I had better reasons for hoping for it than the people at Intel at TI and Motorola because I was now standing outside. When I was at TI and General Instrument, I saw a lot of these IC designers wanting to leave, start their own businesses, and the Mm. constraint was setting up their own fabs. Now, remember, so like, yes, he saw that at TI, but remember, he had been considering becoming a VC instead of going (laughs) over to (laughs) E-Tree. So this is the ultimate end around. He becomes essentially like, the world's best semiconductor VC. He takes an index out on the whole future mm. innovation and, and you know entrepreneurship market in semiconductors by becoming the platform that they're going to build on right. instead of like going and investing in them. Like he enables all of it. He's like the Y Combinator of uh, you know semiconductors, right? Or in many ways, the Tencent. Tencent, of course, also does direct investing, but the idea that you could get distribution through WeChat. Yep. it's kind of like it's not distribution, but it is you know, manufacturing, like there is a thing that you have to raise 10 to 20% of the capital that you otherwise would have needed to raise if TSMC exists. Yep. And just like Don Valentine, uh, you know, kind of when he left to go join VC a generation earlier, and again, it's not VC, it's TSMC building the platform, but Morris is a hero. So all these engineers, they all look up to him. And they, right. you know, he knows a lot of them personally. The ones he doesn't know, like, who's not going to take a meeting with Morris Chang, right? He almost ran TI, you know. Totally. Like, he he did all this amazing stuff. It's interesting because it's like with the incumbents, of course, because they had it in their DNA to be a manufacturer, of course, they wanted to take the most profitable things and manufacture them in-house. But if you actually are betting on all these startups that will never develop DNA to be their own manufacturer, they never want to take that back. Yeah. And so Morris is now going out and evangelizing and he's like, all these great designers, like, we're an option for you now. Like, you want to leave, you want to start your own company, you don't need a fab. We'll be your fab. <laughs> you know, it takes a couple of years. For a couple of years, TSMC has to survive on the dregs from the the IDMs, the big guys. But after a couple of years, these startups get going. You know, little little companies like Qualcomm. <laughs> Broadcom, Marvell, NVIDIA. These are all started with TSMC. NVIDIA was started in 1993, only ever raised $20 million. $20 million. And never opened their own fab. hundred percent. I believe 100% with TSMC. Wow. To this, Well, may, maybe they have other sources, other foundries too, but like the vast majority of their business from the beginning. It, it, and uh, Jensen talks about this, Jensen Huang, the... You know, it took him actually a little while to get on on Morris's radar, <laughs> but once he did, you know, the mass, vast majority of NVIDIA's chips, TSMC makes them. And NVIDIA is what, like a $350, 400000000000 billion market cap company now? It's wild. 
and only raised $20 million. Like that just would, it's, it's like the AWS for, you know, tip companies never would have been possible before. Nope. So this is what's super cool. I don't think Morris saw this. Like this even exceeds his wildest dreams. He was hoping for the, this fabulous market to take off, but this creates this insane flywheel for TSMC. So the fabulous market starts to grow, which they're like seeding and enabling it. As that happens, TSMC's revenue grows. And because they have 50% gross margins and 40% operating margins, they can take that profit and buy more advanced machinery, build more fabs. Advance the level of their technology. Remember, they were starting from behind on technology. Within about 10 years, they catch up and then they start to exceed everybody else. So as they push the manufacturing process technology forward, they're manufacturing better chips with smaller wave, you know, process lengths. They're enabling their customers, which are the fabulous companies, to get better and better performance. As they get better performance, the fabulous companies can address more of the market and more mm. use cases. So their existing customers get bigger and new fabulous customers start, which gives them more revenue, <laughs> which repeats the whole cycle. And, you know, it goes slowly, like any flywheel, like it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time to start turning it. But fast forward to now. So in the early 2000s, when TSMC finally caught up to the level, the bleeding edge level of technology with other semiconductor companies, there were 22 companies that were at the leading edge. I think it was like, I don't know, let's call it 150 nanometer process or something like that at that point in time. 22 and TSMC finally broke in to the pack. They were one of the 22. By the late 2000s, it had gone from 22 down to 14 that were at the leading edge. By the mid-2010s, there are six. It's basically Samsung and TSMC, right? Today, there are two. At five nanometer process is the current leading edge. It's only TSMC and Samsung. Intel has been trying to get there, but they haven't been able to. They've fallen behind. And the next process is going to be three nanometers. TSMC is going to launch that next year. Which, Samsung, by the way, just slipped six months. Uh, interesting. Well, Samsung has already slipped to 2024. Whoa. So very likely in the next process, it's just going to be TSMC. Which means that you will see that on an Apple slide somewhere announcing the next iPhone, talking about how it's a three, three nanometer nan- process. Yep. They'll take all the credit for it. And <laughs> TSMC is totally fine with that because their job is not to market. It's to empower their customers. This flywheel, it's just like unreal what happens here. They run the table on the whole industry. It is interesting. I mean, the the industry went from vertical to horizontally integrated, where the very best products in the market became horizontally integrated. And it's interesting how I'm trying to figure out what drove that. Because at some point, I guess there's a couple components to it. One is the speed at which Moore's Law happens makes it such that you can't be good at everything. You can't be good at everything from... EDA to making the manufacturing equipment to running the manufacturing process to designing the chips. You're not going to write your own instruction set architecture. People did need to break into best of class. Morris has got this great quote about this that I have in here. So he says, the semiconductor business is like a treadmill that speeds up all the time. If you can't keep Mm. up, you fall off. And that's Moore's law. From 22 down to two down to one, like even when their competitors are only doing the one thing that TSMC has done, like if you fall behind by a step, you're toast. Right. And it's because, I mean, that there's this big part of it that you're talking about that hasn't come up on other episodes because we tend not to talk about companies that require a lot of manufacturing prowess. But 
in order to stay on that treadmill, the number of tens of billions of dollars that you need to be spending into CapEx is going up. So you need to be enormously profitable so you can build the factories for the next generation. Yeah. I mean, well, there's two things. So yes, that is 100% true. And the scale of this now, I mean, TSMC just announced they're going to spend $100 billion in CapEx over the next three years, $30 billion <laughs> this year, 60 over the next two. And I bet that keeps going up. So that's a lot of billions. Now, here's the, you might even say, like, this is so strategically important and people are talking about this. Certainly China's talking about this. The US government's now talking about this. Governments might need to come in and just like with a bazooka of money and create other, you know, options because like, almost all their manufacturing is in Taiwan. It's in this like strategically geopolitically challenged location. We need to re-onshore some of this in the US. China, of course, wants their own. You can't just spend the money and do this. The US government could come in and say, we're going to spend a trillion dollars this year to do this. They can't do it because we're going to get to powers later. But there's like this marriage of scale economies and process power that TSMC, like in this industry, there is no amount of money you could spend to catch up next year. You can't. Because the engineering is so hard and the learning curve takes decades to like get to this point where you know, I was listening to a podcast, a Bloomberg Oddlots podcast about this, where they were talking about this and their reporter who covers TSMC is great. China, they asked the question like the, well, China could just spend a billion dollars and, and do this, create their own fabs. And they're doing yep. this. What's the company called? SMIC. Uh, SMIC. SMIC. Yeah. It's the Chinese. SMIC. Yep. Because basically TSMC seems to have picked a side in the US. Yep. And so with a little bit of um, prodding, I'm sure, from various presidential administrations over the last five years. Yeah. The guy who covers TSMC was like, they can do that and they are doing that, but they wouldn't know what to do with it. And it's not because they're dumb. It's the hardest thing it's in the, the hardest world. thing in the world. Yes. To do this stuff, to make the equipment that ASML does and to manufacture the way that TSMC does, it is the hardest thing to do in the world. Yeah. Anybody else could get all the same equipment from ASML. Actually, that's not true. So the, Oh, no, I'm saying even if you could, even you if wouldn't you could, know what to do with it. Right. And it's not because you're dumb. It's like there are only like a small number of people in the world that can operate this stuff. All right. I'm jumping out of my seat here. So I have to, I'm, I'm going to do the ASML thing now. So the reason that some people can't get their hands on the ASML equipment is because the Netherlands did not renew their trade agreement with China. Mm. Also, likely, likely it has been reported that probably that is because of US prodding to say, hey, these pieces of equipment you're making seem pretty specialized. You're the only people in the world who can do it. And it makes the most cutting edge semiconductor manufacturing technology. Uh, maybe let's not sell that to SMIC in China. And so they're not doing that. Now, you might say like, oh, come on, how hard can this stuff be? Well, these machines... Tell us then what these machines do. <laughs> well, first of all, they cost $200 million for a machine that makes the chips. And that's going to go up to like $300 million. And by the way, on a lot of this, we have a lot of thank yous for John Bathgate and Britton Johns from the episode of The Knowledge Project that they went on to talk about a lot of this stuff. It takes four 747s to ship one of these machines. So you you know, you buy one, your your TSMC, um, you buy one and it arrives in of course the 747s, then there's a crew of ASML employees on site not only to assemble it, but then to help you run it. So like you mentioned, these companies are deeply integrated with each other to be able to pull this off. Okay, so what does running it mean? What do these machines <laughs> do? <laughs> okay. So 
it becomes exponentially harder to manufacture chips the more dense they are. So David, you mentioned that 150 nanometers or so from several years back, and we know now that the M1s are made on this 5 nanometer process. Well, the wavelength of white light, of regular light, is 193 nanometers. Ooh, that seems like a problem. Well, it's certainly wide. But, you know, we're humans. We come up with clever solutions. We can solve this. And so you shoot it through a lens, and maybe you shoot it through some water. There, there are, like a laser. Well, not yet. But <laughs> even that really only gets us to like 11 nanometers. So how the heck are we supposed to make these chips where the transistors are ostensibly only a five nanometers apart when what we've done to date, shooting through lenses and shooting through water, gets us to 11 nanometers. Well, okay, so this is crazy. You have to create a plasma. So what they do, and this is called extreme ultraviolet light, or EUV, this is a process that is just wild. On one side of the machine, you drop molten tin On the other side of the machine, you then hit it with a highly specialized laser. You perfectly pulse them. It explodes into a plasma, which creates extreme ultraviolet light. Now, of course, this is hard enough to do, as you can imagine how that might work. But you actually have to do that 50,000 times per second. Yeah, and what I read is that the accuracy with which that laser needs to hit the drop of molten tin is more precise than the calculations to send the Apollo missions to the moon. (laughs) And you got to do that 50,000 times a second. Unbelievable. Now, of course, think a little bit more about this. Well, wait a minute. That wavelength is so small. We're going, you know, shy of 11 nanometers here. We're going to 5 nanometers, 3 nanometers, that actually it is absorbed by all known mirrors, which we're used to reflecting light, but they don't reflect this light because the wavelength is so small. So part of this process involves reflecting it like a bunch of times, like 20 or something before etching the silicon. So what do we do? Well, ASML actually needed to invent a new type of mirror to do this, and they also needed a contract with a German company to make this special type of laser, which is the only known company in the world capable of making it. So like, this is crazy hard stuff. They only make 50 of these machines per year or so. They used to have competitors, like Nikon used to compete with ASML on this, But it's too hard. They gave up. That's how hard extreme ultraviolet lithography is. And of course, we haven't talked a lot about this, and I think it's outside the scope of the show, but just to overly simplify, lithography is kind of the process of taking that silicon wafer and etching a design on it. And if we want to do that in smaller and smaller ways, we got to do with more and more specialized equipment. And at the end of the day, if you want to make the M2, the M3, you know, the A... 18x bionic, whatever it's going to be called. <laughs> like, there is no other way to make it than this extreme cutting edge alchemy. It truly is alchemy. So, you know, Ben. So, like, you're a government. Mm-hmm. You you want to throw 100 oh, billion? Because you know, like, Acquired's doing really well. Like, we're <laughs> we're we're on a tear here. You know, we've got we've got power. We got brand power. We got all sorts. We got we got network. You know, economies. We got our community. Like, we're we're doing well. We, we should invest in this. We should have this opportunity. We should compete with TSMC. Yeah, screw the governments. We'll we'll do it. We've got a couple hundred million dollars. We'll we'll buy this stuff. You know, you have a CS degree. You know, you're the more technical one of it. You you can run this stuff, right? You can when we get the shipments from ASML, you can make this happen. Wouldn't know the first thing to do. <laughs> it's like even if we could invest the cash, even if we could build the facility, even if we could buy the machines, which by the way, that's going to be hard because there's 
50 some on back order. So yeah. like I can't even get TSMC it for a couple like of years. ordered out all of them for years. It takes people who have done the most advanced manufacturing in the world ever in history in order to know how to do the next version of it. And this is why TSMC has 40% operating margins. It's crazy. Totally crazy. I'm just like in awe of this. Completely. Okay, so a little while back, before we get totally geeked out on that, which was awesome, you said something like, how do we get this flywheel effect? You know, it's great, but like, how do we really get from TSMC started taking the dregs from the IDMs, then the fabulous companies came along? How do we get from there to like now? There's another really important chapter here. And you're going to flash us forward from like 93, 95 to like 2010-ish? Is that what's about uh, to happen? 2008. Okay. Well, well, first, we'll stop in 2005. So 2005, you know, things are going well, better than Morris ever imagined. These fabulous companies are getting started. NVIDIA's killing. I mean, I was making gaming PCs at the time. I wanted those NVIDIA GPUs. But NVIDIA wasn't a top 20 stock in the world. No. I mean, Intel was like, NVIDIA, come on. Right. Pff, real men have fabs. Like, <laughs> okay, maybe we we're beyond that part, but like they were making GPUs like NVIDIA's stock tracked like whether they won the next Sony contract for the next PlayStation right. or the Xbox. Like, that, that was the market for That GPUs. was the market. Right. You know, great market, but it's not, not what we're talking about. It's not about, about machine learning. It's not about crypto. It's like, is the next PlayStation going to include your chip or not? Totally. But still, great for TSMC. It's awesome. 2005, Morris is 74 years old. He's like, all right, I did it. I did it, and I've been yeah, I've been buying TSMC stock with my own money. It's done well enough. I don't really need to work anyway. <sighs> I'm gonna call it. I'm gonna retire. retire. Ready to retire. Ready to ride off into the sunset. He hands the reins of TSMC over to his longtime lieutenant Rick Sai, and he retires. He spends a couple years. He's just chill. I don't know what he's doing. He's, he loves literature. He's like reading all sorts of stuff. He's he's on his second marriage, which is, he credits his second wife for like really reinvigorating him and inspiring him. Then it's summer of 2009. By the way, that's right around the time that people were starting to speculate that EUV might work. Like oh, all this had been kind of an idea to this point. Enter the bit science projects before. Yes. Oh, cool. I didn't realize that. Yep. Oh, well, this is going to make what happens even more sense. The financial crisis had happened in 2008. Mm-hmm. And, you know, chaos everywhere. We've talked about it lots on this show. Surprise press conference, TSMC, summer 2009. Uh, they announce that Morris is returning to lead TSMC as CEO. Rick is out. Morris is coming back for the third act of his career. I don't even know what number he's wearing. He's, he's not 45 because <laughs> that was you know the second act. He's like Jordan. He's, he's beyond Jordan at this point. He's coming back. He's going to be CEO again at age 78. <laughs> uh, Rick would actually have a second act himself. Do you know what Rick is doing now? No. Rick is CEO of MediaTek. Which spun out of you of uh, UMC, so like he's he's doing fine. Rick's doing great, but Morris comes back. Why does Morris come back? But this is heralded as like kind of a botched transition, right? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of stuff going on. Like from Morris to Rick, people kind of viewed it as like you didn't really do a great job bringing in the next CEO of the company. Maybe I don't know enough to say. Okay, I, I think maybe, but also like there's a lot going on at this moment in time. So the financial crisis, yep, that's like a crisis that's affecting everybody. So that's one thing. But the other thing, so in the press release, there's a quote from Morris. And he says, <laughs> one, this move will not affect TSMC's fighting spirit and is likely to spur greater intensity. But two, he says that he sees, quote, golden opportunities ahead. 
what are these golden opportunities that hmm. he's referring to? It's 2009. Mobile. Right. The smartphone. 2007 in July, the iPhone comes out. 2008, the iPhone 3G comes out with the App Store for the first time, the SDK, all these developers building for it. But of course... And Android comes out in 2008? Yep. Apple had to this point, well building you know this operating system the scaled down version of os 10 it's unix but they weren't designing their own chips they just used an off-the-shelf samsung chip they got it right with saying like hey we got to use arm in these things because we need a really low power device so they've done actual god's work and magic to be able to bring a pc x86 operating system create a sub operating system computer from in it, your hand totally that runs on arm like yep. a miracle but of course, it's an off-the-shelf Samsung processor. Totally. Well, even that's great for TSMC. Like, you know, Intel's not making that. Okay, so that's one. We're going to talk more about that in a sec. But we should say, and Samsung also fabbed it because Samsung is both a chip designer and a um, But the point is, on mobile, the previous whole paradigm of computing and silicon everything was PC. It was like stuff plugged into a wall. Yep. It was Intel. It was x86. And like, yeah, TSMC could now access some of that because AMD went fabulous, but like... Come on. But now, all of the leading companies that are going to make silicon for design sil- are, are ARM companies, you know, Qualcomm, Broadcom, MediaTek, Apple, like... Who all are fabulous. All are fabulous. Okay, so that's a big opportunity. And guess who knows all of those people? Morris. <laughs> and we should say, too, 2009 was an interesting tipping point because if you'll remember back to the 2007 introduction of the iPhone, Steve Jobs has a slide where he says their hope, their goal is to get 1% of the existing smartphone market. Right. So Apple had no notion. I mean, the uh, Google had no notion of how big smartphones were about to become. In 2009, we're starting to see, I think the iPhone 4 came out. We're starting to see a ton of different OEMs making Android phones. You're moving into this era where everyone's looking at each other going, oh, this might actually be the next computing paradigm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was half of the next computing paradigm. Remember back, I and mean, this is when I started in VC. There were two waves that like everybody was mobile talking about. Mobile and social? Mobile and then all consumer, you know, shifting to, on the consumer side, everything shifting to mobile. Mm-hmm. That was oh, what happened. Bring your own device? Well, sort of. You're on the right track. What happened in the enterprise? The cloud. The cloud. The cloud. Right. So you got mobile and you got cloud. And it's like so simplistic, but like that, those are the two things that right. drove trillions of dollars of market cap over the next decade. Well, what's the cloud? So at first, the cloud is good for Intel, right? X86, you're putting CPUs in the cloud. Amazon's buying lots of... Dude, the cloud's the best thing that ever happened for Intel. Those totally. are incredible server architecture. It was the best thing that ever happened to Intel. But as the cloud progressed and computing workloads progressed, the CPU became a lot less important. Like what's AI started becoming a thing. CPU, like, yeah, maybe, maybe you need some of that. Maybe you'll use Intel. Maybe you'll use ARM, like whatever. But like what really matters. Well, the the majority of cloud workloads are still on CPUs Yeah, okay, today. fine, fine. But you're right. Future looking. Why is NVIDIA now a $400, $304 billion market cap company? It's not because of the PlayStation. And it's bigger than Intel, right? And NVIDIA's 2x Intel's market cap, something like that. Yeah, to it's your the cloud. Point, <laughs> the notion of chips that are really good at parallelized processing which is gpus and matrix multiplication effectively vector math versus the cpu which are sort of these general purpose workhorses built for the operating system that runs on your computer super good for serial of course there's like multi-core you know there's 64 cores on a cpu now so they're good at parallelization too but like 
all this stuff, especially and machine learning is GPUs. It's GPUs and it's specialized, like the Tesla Dojo stuff. That's not x86. Oh, yeah. We're in this. I mean, the, the other thing that Foundry's enabled, the Fabless era enabled, is the custom chip. Like, everybody's building custom chips for all sorts of things. Yep. So, you got these two big golden opportunities <laughs> that are coming online. And uh, Morris is like, I got this. <laughs> when we should say, we should clarify, too. I think Tesla uses Samsung... Oh, interesting. I didn't not know that. TSMC, or at least for part of it. And I think they actually even fab their chips in Austin in the US. Really? Yeah. So this I can't is, imagine that's going to last. This is like the beginning of the like what everyone's sort of hoping for in the US is this like return to American uh, manufacturing of chips. Yeah. They're going to have to go to TSMC though in the next generation because like you want three nanometer. It depends. I mean, it depends what the workloads are and if yeah, you need it. Yeah, I guess it. so. It depends what you need. Well, anyway, point is... Intel's dominance is over and the index on all that's going to take over is TSMC. Yep. And Morris riding back in, <laughs> he, he comes in, he gets these deals done. So like the Apple deal, 2012, Morris Chang, 78, 80 years old. Like, and I think the Apple rep on that was Jeff Williams to the, the yeah. classic Tim cooks, Tim cook. That's right. I think there was something where it was even like a, one went over to the other's house for dinner or something, and it was like a living room conversation to ink right. the deal for, uh, hey, we bought this company, PA Semi. We've been designing our own chip architecture in-house. We're going to launch, I think it was the A4. Yeah, I was think that the was the first, first one. one. Yep. And it was Apple basically saying, we think a lot of people are going to buy a lot of iPhones in the future, and we are competing head-to-head with Samsung because they're a company that is not clear on strategy. They have a yeah. consumer angle here with the Galaxy phones. They think they're also kind of a foundry, which we... And Jobs hated Samsung famously, right? What did hated. he call them? He called he called them some derogatory term. Uh, Well, there's been a few interesting things. There was Steve Jobs saying he was going to wage thermonuclear war. That was on Google, right? I think that was Google. But he had some like... Oh, Samsung, they're just like coffee, like something that like really put them in like... It was about the lawsuits. It was like when they kept stealing Apple's mm. like designs. Yeah. And then there was something else where someone, this is later, but Tim Cook read the quote on stage about it being a toxic hell stew. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't get any better than that. No. Uh, but Bloomberg reported that it was a really big risk for both companies, both Apple and TSMC. Apple was relying on a company that was then seen as an also ran. And the quote is, if we were to bet, I think this is actually Jeff Williams, if we were to bet heavily on TSMC, there would be no backup plan. And for TSMC, it meant an initial investment of $9 billion, fabs are expensive to build, and devoting 6,000 employees to building a dedicated plant for Apple in just 11 months. It took several years before it even began producing the chips. So wow. that was in 2010. And then I think 2012 was the launch of the A4, A4 designed by Apple, built on the PA Semi acquisition, and of course, fabbed by TSMC. And I think it wasn't until the iPhone 6, which was what, 2014, 2013, something like that? That they were solely TSMC? I think so. And that was like the huge hit product. Because remember, the 6 was when they first increased the screen size. And those mm. things flew off the shelves like... I'm pretty sure some iPhones had Samsung fabbed yeah. A4s and 5s in them, and some had DSMC fabbed ones. But I think by the 6, which was the 
Yeah, I mean, Apple was all all iPhones were huge winners, but I think the six was like mega mega yeah. winner, and I think that was all TSMC. Huh. Nine billion of manufacturing capacity just for a deal with one company paid off. That was a bet the farm deal. And kind of like something only Morris could do. Totally. Right? I mean, it really speaks to founder gravitas. Yeah. Even if he had no equity <laughs> as a founder. No equity that he didn't buy. So after getting that deal done in 2013, Morris steps down as CEO again, but he stays on as chairman. And then finally, once like it all plays out and TSMC is on top in June of 2018, Morris retires Presumably for real. He even stepped down from the chairman. Yeah, fully retires from chairman at age 86. Oh, my God. Crazy. Wow. So that was 2018. So, I mean, let's talk about now. So 2020, TSMC, we alluded to this, operating profit of $20 billion on $48 billion of revenue. They took 17 of the $20 billion in operating profit and plowed it all back into CapEx last year in 2020. Beginning of this year, January 2021, they give guidance that they will raise CapEx from 17 last year in 2020 to 25 to 28 billion in 2021. In April of this year, 2021, they raise it again to 30 billion forecast for the year and 100 billion over the next three years. And this is when, like, that's like the real shot across the bow that everybody wakes up, the financial markets wake up, and they're like, holy crap, TSMC has cornered the market. Even Samsung's not going to be able to keep up with this. It's wild. It is wild. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep. Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com slash acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. So more on today, David, TSMC today. Well, okay. So speaking of data, I think this is the data point that really kind of says everything. So since the first IPO in Taiwan in 1994, TSMC has had compound annual revenue growth of 17.4 percent 
for 27 years. Revenue growth. 17.4% compounded for 27 years. Now, the IRR, the equivalent on valuation on market cap, so it was $4 billion market cap at the Taiwan IPO in 1994. Today, it is $550 billion. So that is a 20, like a 19.9% IRR, starting from a $4 billion base over the last 27 years. So 20% IRR over 27 years, incredible by any means, starting from a $4 billion base. It is now the ninth, currently as we record, the ninth most valuable company in the world. And I think other than Saudi Aramco, it is the only company in the top 10 that we haven't done on acquired. Oh, interesting. As uh, Yeah, the oil companies are not, other than Saudi Aramco, the US oil companies are no longer Correct. in the top 10. But Berkshire is- That might be is... foreshadowing some future episodes Ayo. this season. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're in hallowed grounds at this point. The other thing that just talking about financials today, so crazy that they grew 31% in revenue from 2019 to 2020. They're, so they, they doubled their CAGR from 2019 to 2020. Yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> Talk about accelerating growth. Okay, so they're, in 2020, their adjusted net income was $17 billion. How are they going to go spend $100 billion over three years? Is that going to be out of profits of each of those years, or do you think they're doing some kind of financing? I don't know. I don't actually don't know if they've done any financing. I'm quite confident they'll make enough profit to fund it organically because big news just in the past week, they started this a little earlier in the year, but now they're really doing it. They're getting away from Morris's second big innovation of the-, the Reducing prices. Reducing prices. In fact, I think they're going to raise prices- They're going to raise prices. This year by 20%. So the first announcement a couple months ago was they're not going to cut prices- and then they just announced they're going to raise prices. Nobody's ever done this since the pre-Morris days. Pricing power in action. Totally. I mean, what a clearer picture of how they have taken a commodity business and turned it into, I mean, this has got to be one of the biggest moats of all time. Totally. I mean, they've got $28 billion of cash and cash equivalents on the balance sheet, and they're going to use that and all the cash that they generate from their operations to plow directly back into making sure that everybody else is five plus years behind. Unbelievable. The other thing is that they already are the largest. They have over 50% of the market for foundries, like for all contract manufacturing of chips. And like 95 plus percent of the profit. Correct. I thought where you were going with that, it is also true that they have 90% market share on the current generation like the yeah. leading edge chips yeah like yeah exactly in the in the five nanometer samsung has like five ten percent market share and tsmc has 90 plus percent in many ways going to 100 they're the apple of semiconductors they don't have all the market share but they have all the most profitable market share yeah exactly it's that's they are the iphone of semiconductors like you could still buy previous generation you know worse technology from other and for plenty of you know on the odd lots podcast this was actually they, they talked about sort of like the bear case going forward for tsmc and one potential one is that oh well the processing power is so good that like you're not gonna need the leading edge anymore i find that a really weak argument like you always need the leading edge like you think tesla doesn't want the leading edge totally you think apple doesn't want the leading edge so, like, software will always match the complexity on the most advanced hardware it can run on totally which is why like i love when people are like apple's slowing down my computer 
I'm like, yes, I'm sure that's what's happening. They wrote special code that they're putting on there to make the consumer. No, it's it's because every piece of software just always assumes that it has the most advanced processor on earth and it always gets to developers. Sure, they test on two and three-year-old equipment, but no one's making sure that the six and seven-year-old laptops are as performant. Software is designed for the current generation of hardware. You think that Google and Amazon are going to be like, now nah, we're good. <laughs> right. Hell no. It actually is worth touching on. There's one other interesting um, bit about this five nanometer process, which first of all is a marketing name at this point. It, what it used to originally referred to was the length on the gate on the transistor. Mm. At this point, it's not exactly five nanometers and the additional performance is not going to come from you know making smaller gates. Here's the interesting thing though. You actually can't put these transistors much closer to each other. So if you think about silicon atoms that are between the transistors, you can only fit five of them in a nanometer. So in a three nanometer process, sure, it's marketing speed. But, right. Like at some point, you cannot subdivide silicon anymore. So either we need to change the substrate or the innovations are sort of going to come from elsewhere. Elsewhere, yeah. Yeah. Which has always been the case. Like Moore's Law was technically the doubling of the number of transistors on an integrated circuit. Now it comes from multi-core. It comes from all the other advancements of figuring out how to make chips do more stuff faster. Yep. That, I think, is going to keep going. And I think it's going to keep being expensive and getting more expensive. And I think TSMC is the only company that's going to be able to keep up at the leading edge. Yeah. Do you know, David, about Moore's second law? Ooh, no, I don't. So everyone knows about Moore's Law, but there's this second one, which is also known as Rock's Law, after Arthur Rock. Arthur Rock. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gee. It states that the cost of a semiconductor chip fabrication plant doubles every four years. Mm. So with fabs today costing $15, 20000000000 billion, I don't know that that's proven exactly true, but it's certainly- Well, shoot, if we just look at TSMC's CapEx forecasting, they're going from 17 to 30 yeah. To 60 over two years. So that's way faster than four years. So the interesting thing is when you combine these two things, the Moore's Law and Moore's Second Law, it implies that the leading company, that most profitable company, will become the a monopoly. Winner take all. There you go. And it's fascinating that both of these things, these laws aren't actually in conflict because Moore's Law is about effectively, when you really look at it from a financial perspective, operating expenses when producing at scale. And Rock's Law is about the upfront capital expenditures to enable all that production. So it's everything we talk about on the show. It's being able to pile investment into fixed cost as much as possible at huge scale in order to realize the benefits of making as many of the thing as humanly possible at global scale. And TSMC interestingly, is the most perfect example of this. And I, I say interestingly because we almost always talk about operating leverage and scale in the context of software, software on yeah. the internet. This is how venture capital started, because actually manufacturing chips, the operating leverage that comes from huge amount of fixed costs into foundries to make chips and then hopefully be very profitable, 50% gross margin on those chips venture capital financing was built for that, for semiconductors. And it just so happened to work just as well or even better with software on the internet. Even better in the notion that gross margins of software could be 80 to 90%, not 50%. 
but I would back that down because it doesn't have the sort of moat defensibility characteristics that being able to plow your CapEx into manufacturing capability does. Yeah. Should we do power now? Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's do it. So for folks new to the show, this is one of the discussion topics we do for every episode is we go through Hamilton Helmer's excellent seven powers. The best business theory book. Totally. We've had Hamilton on the show. He's amazing. Go read the book if you haven't. He identifies seven powers, essentially, you know, sources of defensibility being, which he defines as long-term differential profit margins versus your competitors, as we've been talking about on the whole show. Yep. The seven that he identifies are counter positioning, scale economies, switching costs, network economies, process power, branding, and cornered resources. And we almost always talk about network economies. We talk about counter positioning on this show. Sometimes we talk about branding. Sometimes we talk about branding. I think we're talking about none of those this time. Yeah. We sometimes talk about scale economies, which we're going to definitely talk about here. But I think we're going to have our first process power if uh, I'm going to forecast. But let's start. Let's go down the list. Counter positioning. I mean, like maybe you could. When they were starting, and in particular, would the incumbents have started with the exact business model? No. Because their profit center was the integration, the, the, all the margin you get of integrating design and manufacturing. And by saying, nope, we're going to be a pure play manufacturer, TSMC theoretically was saying, no, we're going to take less gross margin and we're just going to make it up in volume. I'm actually not sure it played out that way. Yeah. I think they have more. I don't know. What, do you know what Intel's gross margins are? I actually don't know. Hmm. I would suspect they're higher, but I don't know. Right. Yeah, that's it. I actually, yeah, there was counter positioning here. I don't think I said this when we were going through it, but before TSMC and the Pure Play Foundry model, if you were either a fabless company, one of the very, very few, or you were another IDM and you were trying to get some excess capacity, you rent it from another IDM, most of the IDMs, they'll be like, okay, you strong arm them, you got a great strategic relationship, they'll give you some capacity. But they also demanded the right to market your products under their brand too <laughs> so like which obviously tsmc wasn't gonna so yeah there was counter positioning like the idms no way they were gonna do what tsmc was gonna do right huh okay scale economies Check. absolutely <laughs> that is the biggest if it's one of the top two with process power yep in my opinion switching costs well it's funny now there are huge switching you can't switch off tsmc no unless you're gonna stop being on the leading edge if you're going to change from being a phone company to an automotive company, you can switch off of them. Well, I think it's even deeper than that. Again, we, we haven't gone... <laughs> listeners probably think we've gone deep technically on this episode. We haven't even scratched the surface. Totally. But yes, if you want the leading edge, now you got to be TSMC. But you got to be so integrated with TSMC yeah. to do this. Say you want to switch to Global Foundries or you know one of the other competitors out there, of which there are a few. You can't just call up Global Foundries and be like... Hey, I'm porting over. Expect my business on Monday. Right. It takes years yeah. because you're so deeply integrated with the process. Yeah. So yeah, big switching costs. Network economies, it's not really worth talking about. Not in the traditional sense. You know, this is not Facebook here. And, and certainly none of TSMC's customers really benefit from other customers being on it. No, I do think there actually is... I don't think Hamilton captures this in his seven powers, and I don't know if he would consider this one, but there is like an ecosystem aspect here because the EDM companies yeah. and the IP okay. companies are so deeply integrated with TSMC. If you want to be using ARM, for instance, or you know 
they're kind of the best integrated with. Now, I don't think that's network economies. That is kind of like this ecosystem thing. TSMC actually has a name for this. They call it like the open innovation something or other. Hmm. You know, it's some corporate name, but like it, it means this. I do wonder if it's actually worse for a lot of people that Apple is a TSMC customer because who else has access to the five nanometer right, process right. right now? They're going to take as much as they can. Right. Yeah. Good point. Process power. Yes. I think we other got than one. Pixar, this is the first time we've really, although we weren't doing seven powers during. Yeah. To me, this is the clearest example I could ever imagine of process power. It takes all 40 years of TSMC's history to have arrived at where they are today. And even if 10 people left and tried to start the next TSMC, to be able to create what they've created at this point from scratch, virtually impossible. All of their IP, all of their you know, people, all of their know-how, all of their relationships with ASML and the like, yeah, no amount of money can replicate it. I think the only thing that will unseat TSMC is a complete paradigm shift. Yeah. Something where, like what mobile did to desktop. If there's something where the compute required in the future is unable to be provided by anything that TSMC is good at today. If all the crazy laser molten tin ASML stuff we were talking about, if all of a sudden there's discovered a new, either different or way cheaper way, quantum computing, yeah, way to do this, then that kind of could reset the playing field. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. But even little shifts, I bet they'd be fine if they if everyone figured out that like, hey, silicon's not the best substrate, and we can figure out a better yeah. substrate. If there were like an AWS moment, well, which is funny because TSMC is the AWS equivalent, but like <laughs> where uh, something happened that just made it way cheaper than it used to be, you could now get access to the technology and the know-how orders of magnitude cheaper than it is now. That would take away a big part of yep. their power. But I don't see that happening. No. Absent a paradigm shift, this is TSMC's to lose. They're pretty much, they're in the groove. So I think we should skip branding and corner resource for now. Like, I just don't, it's not really worth talking about. I mean, literally, about. they're ant- antithetical to branding. Like, yeah. it's the it's Apple's brand. It's not TSMC. Right. So how do you define, so this is, I think it's a good time to enter our geopolitics discussion Because I was thinking about the other way that TSMC could fail would be that China decides the moment is right to go and assert our force and take over Taiwan. Depending on how you see it, either annex Taiwan or assert its, as always claimed, sovereignty in Taiwan. Yes. Actually start enforcing what, you know, has been right the whole time, I think, as they would sort of say. Yeah. If they were speaking in my casual tone uh, in English from America, then doing all this business with the West... I have to imagine that assuming that it didn't start a full war, like an an actual world war, which it may, then of course they would start using all the TSMC manufacturing capacity for all the Chinese customers. And And, and Huawei's been a TSMC customer for a long time. Huawei's currently cut off. Yeah. So how do you capture that in power? What is the power or or maybe like, let's not- I mean, that's a risk. That's like a bear case. Right. Let's not get too specific on this, but maybe in a general sense, how do you capture the power that a company has that comes from a regulatory environment where would that get classified under that like they they have a lot of room to be operating safely <laughs> um maybe cornered resource i guess so you're saying this is like an anti-power for this, this is a right weakness. exactly yeah. exactly 
Yeah. I suppose that all that matters is things that you have that your direct competitors don't. So I in this strange straw man that I'm putting together, it would really be about what if you were located in a country that none of your competitors were also domiciled in and being there gave you some special ability to be more profitable than others. Which they had in the beginning with the government of Taiwan. Basically, the mafia boss was like, this is happening. Mm. <laughs> we are going to make this. We're going to strong arm everybody in the all the business leaders in the country to investing in this. We're mm. going to make sure that this, you know, happens. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's put a pin in that because you're right. It turns out that it's actually not a perfect power discussion. But the geopolitics thing is interesting. Well, I think it's the bear case for... Right. That, to me, absent an enormous computing paradigm shift, is the way that TSMC has an enormous risk in the business. Yeah, totally. Which does make it kind of surprising that you know they haven't diversified their geographical operations very much. So this is interesting. So they're facing a lot of pressure for this. Yep. They are spending, I think, $12 billion this year to start uh, a plant in Arizona which will not be the three nanometer. I don't even think it'll be the five nanometer. It's not their most advanced manufacturing. I think the US is subsidizing in a big way. I think that's part of the Biden administration's most recent bill to try and bring some semiconductor manufacturing here. But they're also starting a fab in Japan that came out on their last earnings call. So they're doing some... And they have operations in China, I believe, too. Yep. They're doing some diversification. But I don't think it's for this reason. I think it's because... They're basically getting free money to open fabs in other places. And Morris has even made comments like, I don't think it makes any business sense for us to have the leading edge in those countries, even though those countries want us to have them there. I think it makes sense based on the ecosystem that we've created in Taiwan to keep operating it here. So the question is if it directly helps. Let's take the US, for example, the US's prowess as a semiconductor manufacturing force in the world to have TSMC's Arizona plant, or if it's really just indirect. And the idea is like, let's try this as a first stab. We'll get more people in the US familiar with doing this again in case we need to reshore this. Yes. Yeah. Really, the I mean, this is a scary, scary future to contemplate. And I hope to God it doesn't happen. But really, the thought exercise here is what would happen if China annexes yes. Taiwan tomorrow. Which is scary for a number of reasons, the smallest of which is this corporate takeover. It's scary for a lot of people in their lives. Well, it's, a, you know, yeah, scary, but I wouldn't say it's the smallest, like everything, right? Like imagine if we didn't have access to semiconductors anymore, to leading edge semiconductors. Like, yeah, that's everything. What part of our lives do not <laughs> run on? Right. Ford can't make F-150s right now. It'd be like if, you know, like basically all of our technological progress would stop. Yeah, you're right. So I think the question is, and I don't know enough to answer this, what would happen, right? Like, would it be possible to airlift the process power that TSMC has physically out of Taiwan to somewhere else? You get all the people, ASML now sends the stuff somewhere else, you airlift everybody out, there's an evacuation, does the process power come with it or not? Like, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, if the Toyota production system is an example where Toyota tried to, there was that factory, that uh, joint venture with, was it GM? Yeah, the Numi plant that's now the Tesla plant right. in Fremont. With Toyota trying to replicate their process somewhere else didn't work. Now, it wasn't under threat of war. Right, this one <laughs> would need to. It's actually a good question. If you think about like the U.S.'s 
sort of strategic defensive weaknesses. What's more important, having onshore semiconductor capability to continue to advance technology in the nation or Boeing, like our ability to build, which we've always held up as this example of the U.S. needs that to stay U.S. owned, to stay operating, to stay profitable, to stay prosperous, because it is a matter of the U.S. way of life that we're able to protect it. Well, Boeing needs semiconductors. (laughs) Uh, That's a great point. So we're now outside our depth, but is it actually more important to have cutting-edge semiconductor capability here than airplanes or any of the other sort of defense supply chain? And, you know, maybe the answer here is like, it's like Korea, like same situation exists in Korea with Samsung, right? Like North Korea is right there. You know, I've yeah. been there. I've I've been to North Korea. Like I went to the DMZ. Like, yeah, I mean, it's so weird. It's like an amusement park. Weird. It's super, super weird and bizarre. But yeah, North Korea is right there. You know, maybe it's the same like China's right there, but this isn't actually going to happen. But like, I don't know. It feels in the last year, like the risk of it actually happening has ratcheted up quite a bit. I think so. I mean, it's like globalization as a whole. It is in the best interest of everyone to continue to share resources, to continue to entangle everything until somebody decides that it's not and then we have a big problem. And hopefully for lots of reasons, it just continues to be okay that TSMC is located on an island that is uh, of disputed claim. Yeah. Maybe the best... (laughs) We're towards the end of the episode, so we we, can... indulge our weirdness here uh maybe the best thing that could happen is um my carve out a while back was the book by the harvard uh chair of the harvard astrophysics uh department about um umuamua the oh yeah uh, visited the that he postulates is a was an alien spaceship maybe if we discover that aliens are real that's the best like going to be the uniting force you know mm. like all these conflicts seem pretty petty yeah i wouldn't use that as an investment thesis though <laughs> <laughs> no Okay, before we get into playbook and just hit some things that I think we missed during the narrative, or at least didn't put a fine enough point on in the narrative, I have a what would have happened otherwise that I want to hit. We haven't done this in a while. No, we haven't. So, and I'll just read this as a direct quote from Bloomberg, and there were some awesome sources for this episode, all of which are, are linked in the show notes. In the mid-2000s, as Apple Inc. was preparing for the release of its new smartphone, Steve Jobs approached then-CEO of Intel, Adelini, about providing the chips for the iPhone. Intel already sold iPhone, the processors that ran on its Macs. But Jobs made- video to acquire so that everybody can see the look on my face right now. I'm just like, <laughs> literally, I got like fists in the air. I'm so happy. And remember, Adelini was the guy that Jobs brought out on stage during the Intel transition yes. when they were burying the PowerPC to say, this, you know, this is the future, this is the partnership. So, okay, but Jobs made what Adelini considered a lowball offer, and Apple awarded the contract to Samsung. It later began designing the chips itself, eventually outsourced production to TSMC, a contract manufacturer in Taiwan that had been found, blah, 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 blah. So what could have been? Apple wow. went to Intel and said, do you want this contract? Because they were partners on the Mac. Totally. And apparently, it was less about the the fact that, I'm sorry, you want to use ARM? What? No, we're the X86 the company, and it was more about, we felt it was a lowball wow. offer. Biggest strategic error of all time. All right, I'm going to postulate a playbook theme, and I'm, I'm put forward as a postulate. More than a playbook theme. What's the, you know, like in geometry, there's like the, there's like laws, right, that are proved, but then there's like postulates that are like, you can't prove them, but like our fundamental understanding of the universe doesn't work if they don't work. <laughs> whatever that is, axioms, I don't know, whatever it is. I'm going to put one of those out there. Please. Never make strategic decisions based on economics. 
Mm. This is prime example. Like the number of, you know, we talk about this all the time on this show, like VCs passing over valuation on something, you know, uh, Andreessen getting cold feet about a $300 million valuation on Uber. Yep. Right. This Intel move passing on menu, on yeah. being partnering with Apple. And maybe more specifically than economics. Because like you could imagine that you would want to pass on this if Intel didn't get any of the upside from the deal. Assuming that the structure is right, then passing because a number is too low in the structure. <laughs> or Ford Motor Company not hiring <laughs> Morris Chang <laughs> over one dollar, you know, like whatever. Like it's just like uh humans are so prone to cutting off their noses despite their so, faces. So we already have the Rosenthal doctrine of never bet bet against the internet, but now we have the Rosenthal postulate, which is never yeah. make the strategic decisions based, based on, on pricing. A, let's based say. on pricing. Based on not economics, but pricing. Hmm. I like it. I need to add a new section to the acquired website. All right. <laughs> All right. Next on playbook is another one on Intel fading. So it takes a very long time to become irrelevant. So despite Intel's sort of stock price being, I think TSMC is like two and a half X Intel stock price. As a matter of fact, ASML is actually larger than Intel by wow. market cap now. They are the sole source provider of one thing in the value chain to mostly one company and they're wow. bigger than intel now i'd be fascinated okay so public markets investors who are listening shoot us a dm in slack or, or post in general acquired fm at gmail.com or acquired fm at G whatever channel works for you or twitter or whatever I'd be super curious how you are if you are along this thesis that we're sort of laying out on the show how are you playing it between tsmc and ASML? asml which is now europe's most valuable company right I mean, probably you just invest in both, but like, what, yeah, what is, uh, like, how do you think about that? Right. And what's the, like, uh, up and comer that's kind of speculative at this point, but could be a, another puzzle piece here. Yeah. Are you also shorting Intel through all the, like, well, yeah, what do you, <laughs> what do you do here? All right. So my point on Intel is it takes a long time to become irrelevant. They still control 80% of the computer processor market and they have an even bigger share in servers. So like, despite everything we're saying, Still huge. Workloads running on CPUs that are in computers and on the cloud, pretty big business. Yeah. The majority of workloads that are happening in the cloud is not Tesla Dojo. <laughs> you know, right. it's, you know, I don't know, some company that's not a tech company somewhere in, a, in the world running their Outlook server on Office 365. Yep. Absolutely. Doesn't need five nanometer process. Two other Intel things. One is uh, that indecision has been very tough on the company. Bob Swan, who was the former CEO, started to prepare to outsource manufacturing of Intel designed chips to TSMC. Whoa, like that, wow. I think even like two years ago, this was like the plan. They finally decided, thrown in the towel, you know, Intel was the greatest chip manufacturing company in the world. But real men, real men are sensitive. <laughs> they talk about their feelings. Bob Swan is no longer the CEO of Intel. And now, in a complete reversal, their new CEO, Pat Gelsinger, wants to turn Intel into a foundry themselves by which other fabulous companies can contract with Intel to build. Maybe that's right, but if so, they got to figure out, and I think they're thinking about this the right way because they said it's going to be a fully separate autonomous division. They got to run that like a completely separate independent company of the rest of Intel. And if so, I don't actually know why Intel owns it. Yeah, I mean, well, A, let's look at AMD here, right? They did this. They spun out 
their manufacturing into global foundries. Which has been good for global foundries and AMD. Like global foundries is getting ready to IPO. Yep, yep, yep. So like, well, yeah, there's probably the right strategic decision, but it's not going so well. I mean, like it's going fine. It's not TSMC. Right. It's going better probably than if they had not done that, but it wasn't, they're not a winner here. Like TSMC is the winner. Yeah. I guess the the playbook theme there is indecision is paralyzing. I mean, this company has spun its wheels one direction or the other, and all it's done is make itself deeper in the mud. Oh, I just looked up. I was trying to remember this. Gelsinger was the VMware CEO. He started his career at Intel and then went to EMC, and then EMC owned the majority of VMware, oh, yeah. and then he became the CEO of VMware. Yeah, and uh, he was the outside candidate to replace Bomber as... Microsoft oh, CEO. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. You know, I hear he's really revered in the organization that people think he's really going to gonna make some good change there. We'll see. The last thing on Intel, and it's funny, this is not the Intel episode, but there's a thing that happened here that is very similar to the fact that Kodak developed the digital camera first in their lab. They knew it. They They knew this was the future and they didn't commercialize it because... It's impossible to counterposition yourself because of the innovator's dilemma. Intel actually saw extreme UV lithography, UV first. So Intel was the biggest early investor in EUV, committing more than $4 billion to it in 2012. Whoa. It was slower than its main rivals, and this is from the Wall Street Journal, in adopting the technology and skeptical about whether it would work. Eventually, Intel calculated that it was a sure bet to try and improve existing ways of handling lithography. And of course, where we are today, EUV completely enabled the next generation of chips to be built that what existing a great ways couldn't. argument and example for why you need startups. Right? Right? Like, <laughs> totally. Like, yeah, Intel was there. They invested in it. They saw it and they were like, they put four billion in. And I think even to this day, there is not a shipping Intel chip that was manufactured by Intel using UV. Wow. That's crazy. You're right. It is the most perfect, pure example of the innovator's dilemma in action. That's why you need startups. Yep. We're going to talk about that on our next series on Acquired (laughs) quite a bit that we've been foreshadowing a lot this season, but more to come. All right. My next one is that if you're only looking at the outcomes that happened, you cannot reverse engineer what the probability that it would happen is. And uh, this is a very abstract way of me saying the strategy of if you build it, they will come that Morris implemented is a bad strategy. And it also worked. Right. Like if (laughs) something's low probability. Valentine hated. They would never invest in developing a market. That was like rule number one. Like we invest when the market already exists, not when we need to develop it. And this is like the classic problem. This is the knock up here in Seattle. There's a lot of people spinning out of Microsoft starting companies. Classically, people coming out of Microsoft would always want to build platforms because Microsoft was the platform company. And they would always have a small, too small of an understanding of the market of people that wanted that platform today. And they assumed if you build it, they would come. Morris was that exact problem. And yet, if something is going to be true 10% of the time and fail 90% of the time, one out of 10 times, it's going to work. And it may have been the case. So I'm, well, I guess what I'm saying here is if you're starting a startup, it's impossible to know if this was actually a good strategy or if it was right. a bad strategy that probabilistically just happened to work. I mean, this is the thing about startups, right? Is like, there are all these rules, right? But like, 
they can all be broken. There is no formula. Yep, totally. All right, other playbook themes? I just have one more that, again, we've, we talked about a bunch in the episode, but I want to highlight that and actually add one spin on here. Talked about it all the way back in the beginning in the, the pilot sponsorship. You know, the Jeff Bezos quote about AWS. As a startup, anything that doesn't make your beer taste better, the analogy back to German beer factories and outsourcing electricity generation. Outsource things that aren't your core competency. Right. Focus on what makes the beer your beer, whatever that is, proverbially taste better. And everything that is not that, like finance and accounting, outsource to pilot, you know, like et cetera. Double underscore that. But you know, like this is obvious, so obvious, but obviously Bezos didn't say it directly. And thus I think we don't highlight it enough. The counterpoint to that is anytime you see something that is like people are lots of people, lots of companies are doing that is not making their beer taste better. That is a massive opportunity to go build a platform company. (laughs) That is how you build a platform company. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the Internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads... Go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. Grading? All right, so we were thinking for grading. Look, we could grade like, I don't know, Taiwan's decision to do this. To own 50% of the company could, at the outset. You know, whatever, like, you know, uh, A plus, <laughs> you know, not not interesting. So we had the, the thought, the experiment, we'll try this for um, this episode. Rather than like letter grading this, We'll ask a question. Where does TSMC belong in the pantheon of great technology companies of all time? Is it FANG level? Is it like top five? Is it top 10? Is it like top 20? Like, where is this? What is the right context in which we should be placing TSMC, this whole story, the company, the power, all of it? So interesting because it really does raise this question of value chain. I mean, we talked about the like, five-part value chain that exists today for making chips. And so it's interesting because you could sort of say, well, it belongs wherever Intel belonged circa 2000. Or you could say, well, 
the set of products that TSMC manufactures have a hundred x the scale that Intel in circuit you know 2000 had like if you yep. think about it yep. all this stuff that everyone's all excited about every time someone talks about the next wave of computing and they're like machine learning or they're like crypto or they're like 5g or they're like and anything they tell you is something tsmc makes that enables it all when mark yeah. andreessen says software is eating the world it's only eating the world because tsmc has made it so freaking cheap to manufacture silicon and then you can run whatever you want on that silicon and it's the cost of compute asymptotically approaches zero because TSMC, TSMC, TSMC. So how much do we ascribe to them versus ASML? How much do we ascribe to them versus the entire landscape of talented chip designers out there, including the like 600 chip designers at Apple working on the Apple Silicon? It's hard to disambiguate that. So where does it belong? I mean... It's probably the most successful and important B2B hardware company of all time. I think we can safely say at this point, it surpasses Intel. I mean, gosh, right? Like, that's a big statement to say, right? Like, Intel, <laughs> Silicon Valley, the traders say, like, all of it. Moore's Law. But in compounding, all the value shows up at the end. Yep. So it is true that the value that TSMC will create in the world over the next year, two years, three years, yeah. is probably more than the entire silicon industry leading up to this point combined. I mean, hell, they grew 30% last year <laughs> at like an already unimaginable scale. Like Intel's not doing that. Right. Okay. I think we can say it's above Intel. I probably wouldn't say it is above Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Google in terms of pure value creation in the world. I mean, devil's advocate, you could argue that none of the innovative things those companies are doing now happens without TSMC. Yeah, unless the Foundry model and the Fabulous model was inevitable. Yeah, maybe somebody else would have done it. Yeah, maybe. But they didn't. They didn't. And um, Morris did. I mean, guys, the thing that I'm like, it's really just beaten me over the head in this episode we've probably beaten all of you over the head with or at least i have <laughs> is um you know look there's the geopolitical risk with being in taiwan other than that i don't know that there is a stronger moat that any company has in the entire world than tsmc compare it to all the fang companies and microsoft like those are very very strong moats but like we've seen all of those you know they've changed their new companies they've emerged they've like you know Microsoft fell and then now it came back with new strategy and like Facebook's not that old and Google's not that old. TSMC is impenetrable. Yeah. They're, yeah, their business model and the costs required to compete are such that they have... It's like bulletproof. It's everything but bulletproof. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, sadly. Say, yeah, sadly, yeah. So... You know, I don't know, maybe we're exaggerating because we're like so deep in it. Like we always get we always go native on these episodes. Right. The, like... the only way it could be more valuable is if the company had an army. <laughs> it's like if people talk about the US dollar is backed up by the, the full faith of the US government, which implies guns. Yep. And so it's only because everybody's currently playing by the rules that any business gets to stay in business. And so this one just happens to be a little bit more at risk than other ones when it comes to that. All right, so I think we can safely say top 10. I think the question is, is it top five? Well, defensible is an interesting question. So in 30 years, will TSMC be a huge company? 
Well, they've got this dynamic going right now with this flywheel where like structurally nobody can catch them. Something unforeseen has to change. But something unforeseen will change because it always changes. Right, 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 right. Yes, yes, true. Who's had the most similar dynamic in the past? Standard oil. Either been successful or unsuccessful. Standard oil is a good one. Cough, foreshadowing. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of what, like, that is, it's a very different style, but same sort of dynamic with standard oil, right? was like they crowded out, like, structurally how they were set up, and we'll talk way more about this later, nobody else could compete. Right. And the rich kept getting richer. And they kind of still exist. That's the best. That is the best part. They kind yeah. of still exist. Yeah. All right. I'm with you. Um, I'll go top 10, but probably not top five. Yeah, it is. Hard. I mean, like, what I'm wrestling with is how much of it is just, like, marketing. And I don't mean marketing in a bad way, but, like, intentionally, TSMC rides under the radar. Like, they intentionally have no brand. Right. The brand is the customers. They want the customers to succeed. So we don't hear all the time about them like we do the fan companies. Yeah, we will start to. I think anybody who tunes into this episode probably saw the name of the episode and then thought, hmm, I should tune into that because I've seen more about this thing recently yeah, I that I previously didn't know about. Kind of like we did when we were like, <laughs> we should do this episode. It's finally time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's where I want to leave it with grading. All right. So well, I'll, I'll put a stake in the ground. I'm going to say... I think I'm with you. Top 10, not top five yet, but you know, maybe we need to revisit this. I will definitely say it's the most successful B2B hardware company ever. And the question is, is it the most successful B2B company ever? I'd say it's probably just competing with Microsoft there. Yeah. I mean, and again, maybe even like across all industries, right? Like look at, I mean, shoot, semiconductors run everything. Yeah. And they run semiconductors. Semiconductors are the new oil, David. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, enough, enough, right. enough. We got we got to bring this one home. Carveouts, carveouts. Let's do it. I've got two. Jenny and I were just down in Santa Barbara for a couple of weeks. Rented an Airbnb down there. It was so great. We did that last year. Hopefully, this becomes an annual thing in the summer. Yeah, Let's escape the the freezing San Francisco summers. Um, <laughs> the uh, so while we were down, we don't we don't watch a lot of TV usually, but you know it was like change a scene summertime in a new place we're like all right we'll, we'll watch some tv together at night so this is like for the percentage of you out there who are like living under a rock like me with tv we've watched now most of ted lasso season one because ah. we heard season two was terrible but that made me think well it was terrible it is terrible but season one's great. that made me think oh if people are this upset about season two yeah. that means season one was really good it's so good if you haven't watched it we're on episode eight now ah, so we're not quite club. done so good love it and then the other TV show we watched, this was Jenny's suggestion, old school throwback a show called Greek, which aired in the mid 2000s and is about oh yeah uh, Greek like like sorority and fraternity yeah, life yeah, yeah. on a fictional university. And like, it's just so good. It's like one of those heartwarming, like, you know, period pieces, but like it was right from like when we were in college. So like, yeah, <laughs> it's fun. Nice. All right. David watching TV. Who knows what could change in the world? Right. Maybe TSMC's mode isn't as uh, deep as we thought. <laughs> All right. Well, mine is a book that has been recommended to me for two or three years now, and I finally got around to reading, and it was awesome. It's called Who is Michael Ovitz? And you know, if you've read Shoe Dog, and you've read The Ride of the Lifetime, and you've read what's the Ford one, An American Icon, these like iconoclastic. Yeah. What's uh, there's CEO a Sam Walton founder one, um, business built in America. I think. Yes. Yeah. This one needs to be on your list, especially if you've enjoyed any movies or TV shows that were put together in the last, well, let's, let's be specific. Or from our like, two-part injuries in Horowitz series. 
Totally. From like 1975 to 2000, Michael Ovitz put everything together. And it is this wonderfully written book about an unbelievable business story, the strategy behind it, the way that with Creative Artists Agency, they just completely upended the entire industry in Hollywood and did it really without ever talking to the press and were very tight-lipped about it. For some a Hollywood outsider, I found the book really, really wonderful, really compelling. I also think I previously had only read The Ride of a Lifetime and watched the um, Disney Plus special about sort of the history of Disney and Disneyland. I don't feel I had a full... I had a one-sided view of Michael based on just his short tenure at Disney. Yeah. Yeah, And and I was going to say, yeah, what a great connection with, you know, Acquired and (laughs) Disney and totally. And what kicked it off was doing the Andreessen episodes and, you know, hearing about how they, how they uh, base it on CAA. So especially if you like those episodes or if you like the Disney episodes or if you are a movie fan or if you like these like classic CEO business stories, who is Michael Ovitz was just an awesome read. So cool. Well, and you know, like all the media that like we grew up on, you know, like, yep, probably even more so because we were kids, but it was the adult movies that were coming and the kids movies too. But like, you know, when you're a kid and like the adult movie that you really want to see, but totally. like, too young to see. And just the, all these like such classics, like Goodfellas, like that was just my previous carve out or Jurassic Park yep. or just everything that they packaged. It's cool to hear how it came to be. Super cool. Uh, I don't think we told you at the beginning, but uh, you can join our Slack, acquired.fm slash Slack. Come hang out with uh, 9,000 other talented, smart, good-looking people like yourselves. You should become an Acquired LP. We go deeper. In fact, uh, we just did our, our most recent LP call. Really fun to to do that and have uh, Matt McBrady join us too, who obviously was uh, on our most recent LP episode talking about the Fed, macroeconomics, uh, difference between monetary policy and fiscal policy, which I just learned about inflation, interest rates, all that stuff was super fun. So obviously you get all 50 plus, probably like 60 or 70 episodes at this point. Including actually our full episode with Hamilton. That's right. Right. It was only a preview that we put in the main feed. I think the full episode. Actually understanding seven powers uh, is available there with Hamilton. So um, become an LP. It supports what we do and uh, it, it lets you be closer to the show and we love our LPs. Well, with that, listeners, feel free to share the show with a friend. Feel free to rate us in iTunes. Shout it from the social media hilltops. Yeah. You always say, yeah, sometimes you say, but uh, uh, I'll chime in here too. Like seriously, you know, it's funny. Podcasting is this weird thing, right? There's no viral loop. It's not like, you know, you can share it. Please you know, share it from social media. We, we love that. That's great. If you love this episode, you think it's interesting. You think what we do is cool here. But really the way this grows is word of mouth. Like that is it. That's how, you know, people tell their friends, they listen to this episode. They thought it was cool. They think that their friends would, you know, really enjoy, learn from listening to this too. So share a thing you liked, share a thing you disagree with us on, whatever it is. If you feel that way, please do that. If you don't feel that way, get in touch with us and tell us why. (laughs) All right, listeners, we will see you next time. We'll see you next time. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Huh?